Hello and welcome to Final Games, a podcast about the games that inspired us. I'm your host, as always, Liam Edwards, and thank you so much for joining me for the 77th episode of the show, and to once again banish a delightful new video games guest to a deserted place where they can only take eight games to play with them for the rest of their days. Joining me this week is a guest who's steeped in the world of indie games, a developer with experience both on the smaller scale of indie development, but also knows one or two things about creating viral smash hits as well. My guest founded his own game studio back in 2006 with his wife, and in 2014 he relaunched it as his, as the new studio, studio is known as today, Finji. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Oh, Under the Finji roof... Oh, perfect. Finji, excellent. Under the Finji roof, my guest and his wife have been part of numerous amounts of projects and games, including publishing 2017's excellent title from Infinite Fall, Night in the Woods, a title with, which only a couple of weeks ago won a BAFTA for narrative design, which my guest humbly walked up to accept, as well as walking, working on their own new game called Overland, a turn-based survival game with an incredibly striking art style and aesthetic, with incredibly unique, almost isometric setups and it's uh, currently in very early access but you might know my guest best as perhaps not inventing an entire genre of video games but for sure making it one of the most popular and a mainstay within the industry in 2009 my guest released the apocalyptic endless runner that took the industry by storm Cannabalt. If you somehow live in a cave and either haven't heard or completely missed it, Cannabalt dominated the iOS and app market for a long time and tasks players with helping an unnamed man run endlessly across tumbling buildings, crashing cranes and all manner of destruction whilst the world comes to an end in the background. Cannabalt's simplistic gameplay yet innovative style helped boom an entire genre of endless runners and other games trying to emulate its successful formula. I myself am even guilty for taking inspiration from Cannabalt in one of my own games as well. Thank you, Adam. Thank you. Sorry. <laughs> when quoted about the origins of the game, my guest supposedly said, I used to have fantasies at my old office job of running down our long, long hallway just for fun and to literally escape. Well, I'm incredibly honored and excited to say joining me to escape to a deserted place is Finji director and game designer and one of the wonderful overseers of GDC as well, the fantastic Mr. Adam Saltzman. Hello, Adam. Hello. Hi. Hi. How are you doing today, sir? I'm good. This it's is a lovely, lovely desert island that I am on now. No, I'm it's very geez. tranquil and child-free. Excellent. Well, full steam ahead then. <laughs> let's get let's, let's get you to this island as fast as possible. It seems you're very up for the challenge. We were doing a little talking before recording, and you are you are having some troubles nailing down the last three. Uh, yeah. But then the three you brought up excited me to no end. So I'm very excited to look at your list today and talk about their games that you've chosen. We've had a spade of guests recently who've chosen games that I personally love as well, which makes my job as host on this show way easier. So <laughs> thank you for choosing more games we can talk about, including games that are a first for the show, which is always delightful. Um, mm -hmm. But before we jump into all that, Adam, we need to talk about you, my friend, a little bit about you and what it is you get up to and how you sort of fell into being one of the video game people who are chosen on Final Games alongside many other indie developer friends of yours as well. Um, so can you tell me a little bit, basically, how did you sort of get into like game design in general? Was it always something you'd wanted to do? Or was it something that you just sort of tripped and fell into and was like, huh, this seems like a nice place to stay for now? 
I think for me, it's kind of 50-50. I think um, uh, in some ways, my fate was mostly sealed probably in like 1988 because uh, I played Super Mario Brothers on the NES for the first time. And it was just like, I couldn't... Um, I couldn't handle it at all. Like there's no, <laughs> like my tiny six-year-old brain was uh, incapable of dealing with like the immensity of what had just happened by playing it, I think. Uh, yeah. And like a lot of kids, I had very limited um, screen time uh, when I was younger because video okay. games were bad for your brain and stuff like that, yeah. right? It's going to uh, rot your brain. Yeah, which pr probably is true. Whatever, it's fine. Um, <laughs> but uh, because I had limited screen time, it was like, well, now what am I going to do with the rest of my life? I'm only allowed to play Mario for a few hours a week. So I would draw little Mario levels and draw the bad guys and draw my own ideas for levels and stuff like that. Uh, and I think that pretty much was that. Like my path was pretty set, but it was still pretty subconscious in a lot of ways. So... Um, I grew up at a kind of an awkward time where access to the very programming friendly 8-bit computers um, was, we didn't really have that, like a 386 or a 46 PC or something. Yeah. But we hadn't yet entered like the golden age of like Game Maker and Unity and so on. So uh, I ended up making like a lot of Doom mods and a lot of Quake mods and um, ended up being pretty active like in the Half-Life modding scene up through college. Uh, and that was kind of like my outlet for like, oh, maybe I could be a, a level designer or a texture artist or something like that. Um, yeah. And I, you know, wanted to get a gig maybe doing maybe level designer environment art at like a big AAA company, but I couldn't get hired because I was really bad at it and didn't know anybody. And uh, eventually... Um, uh, EA Spouse happened and it was like, oh, I actually don't want, I don't think I want to work at a big game studio because this sounds terrible uh, and <laughs> this isn't the lifestyle I want. And like growing up, I had, you know, um, parents who would work super long hours and were never home yeah. and stuff like that. And I was just like, I don't want to, I don't think I want to do that, um, but I'm not sure what else to do. In the meantime, so I made photography software for a long time, and then I made pixel art for Sidekick games for a while. The T-Mobile Sidekick, like the old school mobile thing, like pre-iPhone, and then we made Flash <laughs> games and iPhone games, and just kind of like slowly, um, uh, I think, uh, basically, like I, I think I got, I got lucky and got to make a lot of mistakes when it was cheap to make mistakes. Uh, yeah and because uh, this is like this is the time when you, you know we we have i think indie games is this sort of weird thing that everyone just accepts now even though there is a sort of backlash from many small aspects of gaming communities uh indie games blah 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 mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. there was this time when there wasn't no one was really sure what it was like making a game by yourself seemed like an impossible financial and also technological task yeah so there was this time when you could sort of experiment, I guess, without thinking too much of it. Yeah, I know, like, this, the sort of the indie game scene that I was part of was very much kind of, I think, motivated by a certain kind of sort of stubbornness or backlash on its own against casual games. Um, yes. So ca casual games were the indie games of the day 
in a lot of ways, like in the early 2000s, these were small teams, small studios, they were financially viable, they were reaching new audiences, they're like doing all the stuff that we liked, but um, there was a lot of backlash against both the presentation, I think, and also sort of the gameplay systems. Uh, and it was also they kind were of our... generally not good games. <laughs> yeah, or there was a mix, or there was a good game in there, but it was buried under something that either looked really unappealing or really quote uncool, or uh... you know was this was kind of our first sort of like dipping the toes into the kind of like morally dodgy waters of free to play games. Also, you know, like is this really a game or is this just a piece of software that says good job? Uh, because... <laughs> every time a <laughs> random thing happens things. yeah yeah um so okay. there's a lot of like trying to figure out what that space was and there was a lot of design motivated by wanting to be the opposite of that wanting to be really visually stripped down and really systems heavy and so on and so forth and i think some of those things uh are still true for a lot of indie game designers who sort of came of age or came out of that scene um, and it has ups and downs. And I think somewhat ironically, um, I've ended up being very, very interested in games that have a strong sense of place and have a lot of audiovisual polish. So now uh, I've become the man against which I previously railed or something. I'm not sure. <laughs> I, I, it sounds different. There, You know, there, there is the, the old indie where it's like, let's make a game for as cheap as possible and do morally subjective things to make as much profit as possible without mm -hmm, without mm -hmm. worrying about the artistic... It yes. doesn't matter the artistic presentation about it. Whereas now it's like there are quite a lot of indie games and being able to make games has become very much more viable for a lot of people to experiment and also do stuff that it's almost like making a well-polished and interesting game is the opposite of what you want to do now making experimental and looking in different niches and directions for video games makes games more appealing these days mm -hmm. which is like the complete opposite from that time yes yeah 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 the focus and the intent and i think the motivations and everything are pretty different and um i think our sort of understanding of you know, what was being built then and what was a clone and what was kind of a dodgy thing to do for your audience and stuff like that. Like our understanding of this stuff has grown a lot. And, uh, you know, the other the other big thing when I was coming up was like, if you if you thought up an OK game idea and just made it in a few days and put it out, it was probably like the coolest game that came out that month. Like <laughs> there just wasn't a lot of stuff like AAA games were not in the best place like especially yeah. like there that mid 2000s i'll probably it'll be in my list a little bit in the mid 2000s there's this wave of of triple a stuff that is um still hugely influential today right like all, all, at almost the same time you got like uh left for dead portal uh wind waker metroid prime resident evil 4 prince of persia sands of time um uh uh god of war uh you just got these like really like truly genre defining triple a work was coming out and there is this brutal gap after the mid 2000s where they're just like 
oh my god, what do we do now? Do we just make sequels yeah. to these things? Do yeah. we, you know, uh, do we make things that are spiritual sequels to these because we can't license them? Like, you know, I don't know, like a Gears of War? Do you, um, uh, like, uh, how do we translate the stuff that we barely got away with in this last generation <laughs> to the new generation of hardware? You know, like, there's... Um, they're just hammered and so like platforms and marketplaces all these places suddenly really i think valued a lot experimental indie games as something that and could that... kind of like fill in the gaps between like we won the last generation what the heck do we do now yeah and that's like the era i think a lot of people who maybe haven't been around as long or maybe don't know about like you know tick source and like back in the day like early mm. early indie development people see is like that era just after the, all the sort of games you mentioned they're like the 2000 to the 2005 era of resident evil 4 wind waker left for dead portal all those games coming out there was this start where games like braid and mm -hmm. super meat boy and castle crashers and all these wonderful smaller studio games or like single per person development studios came came along and it, it was like boom yeah. And I feel like a lot of people misjudge that as the start of where the current indie game cycle is. Yeah. A lot of people think that. And I guess that is what that time happened. And then there was that period between then and like 2012 where it was like all these brand new and special indie games were coming out. Yeah, and in some ways, I think it's a, it's a little bit like Cannibal, where people are like, that's the first Infinite Runners. Like, that is not true, but it was, you know, when these things happen, when these changes happen uh in a way that's relevant to the way the market still works then i think yeah um it is kind of because there were like i was really inspired by the previous wave of indie developers also so like the guy who made like railroad tycoon or um you know like like old school put it in a ziploc bag pc game developers right like those um that crew and their flexibility and their freedom and their artistic ideas were all things that were really important to me but also that was kind of a bygone era in some ways like there was no yeah. there was no practical way of going back to shareware times uh and so like the sort of the quote-unquote rebirth of indie in like the mid-2000s on consoles and everything else was like yeah, I think it's I think it's sort of okay to call that the start of the current thing in some ways. It's not like those weren't the first indie devs of all time, but the way that the market and the audiences and the reach and the heart like all those things are still pretty relevant right now even though, you know, the behavior of the thing is different. Yeah, and it's weird because I wanted to ask you about kind of about then and what sort of Considering you already had previous experience, it wasn't, was it this kind of just out of the blue thing that you made and expected to maybe just throw it out there and see what happens? Or did you actually have like a, because you'd worked in game development prior and done like other stuff, had you like expected to do something with kind of and make it the, not obvious, I don't think anyone could plan for the success like a game like kind of had, but did you plan for it to at least, you know? make a living kind of thing because uh, it was still experimental and very like i was watching some clips today of like you know when you're indie like indie game the movie and when you're talking mm -hmm. about messing with the sound and like making like a sort of orchestral film soundtrack to it and stuff like very experimental ideas for a game that is kind of 
a standard sort of thing on iOS and apps now, mostly due part thanks to you. Um, but what was your sort of thinking around that time? Because this is like 2009, well, I guess like 2008, 2009. So yeah. this whole time was happening. It was, it was a mix of things. I think um, my... Uh, I think I'm I, I'm lucky in the way that a lot of my personal interests in games I think dovetail with um, things that have been commercially popular for a long time. So like okay. I I like working on games that are um, very like accessible and easy to play. Um, that's something that I'm like I'm fine spending a bunch of cycles trying to figure out how to take you know something that's really gnarly and obtuse and try to figure out how to get the thing about it that's special in front of somebody who maybe doesn't play a lot of games. Um, and I think in terms of like a game design kink, that's like a pretty safe, uh, popular line to be taking. Like it's like literally the thing that I like doing the most is taking weird things and figuring out how to not make them popular, but make them like able to be popular, make, uh, make them accessible to a wider audience. Right. So, yeah. um, there were, uh, there were a lot of, th I sort of had, you know, was mentally keeping track of like places where I felt like, um, there were games, especially in the weird pre iPhone mobile space that were kind of doing that. Cause everybody had a mobile phone and there was yeah. a game called tower blocks, um, tower. which was spelled with probably two X's or something. It was, it was weird, but, um, it was like a reverse crane game almost. So you, there was like a, um, uh, uh, you were trying to build a really tall tower and there was a block swinging back and forth at the top of the screen. You would just press one button and it would drop the block onto the tower. Um, and if the tower got really lopsided, it would fall over and you'd get game over. Um, okay. And so it's a very simple, very, very simple game that, you know, you could have done on an NES or something like that. And doesn't even use up, down, left, right. It just has this one button, just press it at the right time and, and do the thing. And, um, but it still has like a component of skill. It's still about... Um, watching the speed of the thing and trying to estimate the trajectory as it falls and press the button at just the right time, you know, to predictively place the block in the right place. Okay. Um, so they've taken a lot of ideas from, say, like a Tetris or um, even from like a projectile-based uh, action game, and they've kind of like boiled all these ideas down into this like one super narrow channel. And the game was designed uh, to be played in the portrait orientation even so that it looks good on a mobile phone um, and it can survive in a square screen and uh, old mobile phones had really crappy buttons that couldn't be quote unquote corded. So you couldn't press two buttons at the same time on an old mobile phone. Right. So that was a game design nightmare because we always think of the game. You like hold right and press jump. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> and uh, you can't do that on these old phones. It just doesn't work. Uh, the hardware can't do it. Um, so uh, I always thought that was a really cool design because they had taken the constraints of the platform and they had taken a real interest in making something that wasn't a slot machine. This is still this like anti-casual games thing. Yeah. Like, oh, here's a game where there's a little bit of skill and there's almost no controls. That's really cool. Um, and so like, 
Uh, and it was also a very commercially successful game. It was a very popular game. And that I thought was, that was just cool. It was like, oh, you could work in this, you could work in this space, you could have these values, and maybe um, a lot of people would see that and play that and think that was cool. Uh, and maybe that'll be financially sustainable, but also like it would feel good to do work that a lot of people liked. Like that just feels good on some level. So I think for Cannonball, it was a mix of things of like, you know, what if you have these tower blocksy kind of design values, um, but then you also are kind of like sneaking in um, stuff that you like. Like I don't, I don't want it to just be a skill-based game. I want it to be really genuinely like exciting in a way that I value exciting games like um, like Wipeout or Bayonetta or something. Like I want speed I want, and yeah, yeah. The especially element, the element of convincing the player they're moving at speed and stuff like that, even if their maybe input is minimal. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm thinking like Burnout or Sonic the Hedgehog or there's like there's so many games that are in the like basically you know even now like a, a modern more modern game like a Trackmania or something like a game where it's like why does this game even have a gas button like why does it even have a go <laughs> button like it's really just a nudge back and forth while you're going yeah. 600 miles an hour game tap, tap the stick keep yeah. on the track kind of thing yeah with yeah, yeah. And, and, and i that. love yeah. that feeling that's the coolest feeling to me but a lot of people you know uh just getting through the menu of a track mania game is this someone like, someone once described them to me as course correction games Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, the, uh, the idea that you're basically just correcting your course towards a goal. Like, you don't yeah. actually do anything else, but the excitement of the speed you're going at and the yeah, idea yeah. that you can physically manipulate something a little bit to keep just it on track. Just the tiniest bit. Yeah, just uh, the these, like, little is, micro is adjustments. And that the game is giving you feedback and saying, like, I value your micro adjustments. You just got a silver medal just from your micro adjustments. <laughs> there's also this, like, feeling, like, as a kid, I used to have these um, sort of, like, anxiety dreams, I think. Like, they weren't full-on nightmares, but it was, like, you'd have a dream. It was, like, a falling dream or something like that. It was, like, a weird probably some kind of inner ear something or other going on. Um, but it was this feeling of like, and you could get it in real life when you're awake too. Like if you jumped off the swings, you were swinging really fast, you jumped off the swings and tried to jump as far as you could and you landed and almost fell, but not quite. You're like that feeling of like barely keeping your feet under you. And this feeling of like always about to topple forward. Cause you're going, you're right at the edge. Um, and like, and I know now that that is called flow state and that's where that's like the psychological part of having a runner's high or being a skillful piano player or all of those things. But there's this really, really basic, like mammalian, um, thing that comes out of like almost falling over, but not quite basically puts you in flow state mentally, which I think is really cool. And I really wanted that, um, it would be like, what, what if you had that, like, we had made a, a mobile, a pretty successful iPhone game like a year before Cannibal came out. Um, but mobile space was very much about the games that I like in it now, which are like puzzle games, word games, card yeah. games, you know, very um, kind of like casual space, but with a little bit of like cred and morality or whatever. Like those are the games skill that I love. Skill as well. Yeah. Little bitty They require likes. skill. Yeah. yeah. And thought and and all that um and i love those games what i really really want on iphones there's like there's nothing where you get this weird 
um, feeling. There's nothing where you get this flow state feeling that's on mobile really and that's such that was such a huge part of the rest of the games that i was playing that was a huge part of left for dead it was a huge part of like guitar hero you know uh and i wanted to sort of get that and nobody was doing it so on some level like i think it was it was only maybe maybe it's the thing where cannibal was really only as experimental as it had to be because like there's this feeling that I wanted it to have and nothing had it. So you had to make up new stuff uh, if you wanted to get this flow feeling from complicated games and cram it into something that was functionally just tower blocks. Uh, yeah. And yeah, they're, like there's there you have to do some experiments in order for that to work. But experiments were so cheap and easy to do. Like I had a lot of confidence that if I spent an entire week on a game instead of three days on it, that it would come out looking pretty cool and that's very I mean, to, different uh, to from do now. what you did in like oh just a week itself is insane because the the feeling you get in kind of about like when you said the the coming off the swing sort of motion like all i could think was the jump in kind of about when you're just about to land and you roll like it, yeah. it, that is exactly what that is that that almost moment like momental panic just as you land, and then you quickly readjust yourself, and you carry on going after you're just this sort of slow fly through the air, depending on the arc of your jump. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what that is. It's a cool, get- cool feeling. And I think it was like, I'm mostly just happy that we like discovered it. Because the other thing is like, we were not uh, in a place, uh, Beck and I were not in a place where we could like, I, here's the mistake. I, when we made Cannibal, I was like, aha. I am good at making games. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to pump out one of these every week. Uh, and yeah, it turns out it really doesn't work like that. Um, uh, so I think the success of Cannabal has shown that. You, there, there are some times when you just make something that's so beyond everything, even what everyone else can do, let alone your own sort of thing, where you're like, oh, wow. Yeah, I'm, it I'm felt a, like a I'm very... I'm a god. <laughs> yeah. It was, oh, oh and, maybe I'm not. <laughs> yeah, looking back, it was like, oh, I was digging holes in the yard and found a gold coin one time, um, and <laughs> I, I was able to recognize holes, it. Like, I knew enough I'll... about gold to know that it was a gold coin, and it was like, wow, <laughs> cool, we found one. But I thought it was like, I know so much about gold that I can sense its location beneath the ground. <laughs> if I dig more holes, I'm determined and destined to find treasure chests. It's, well, yeah, this, yeah. <laughs> finally I found one. So every, it wasn't even that, it was every next hole that I dig will also have gold coins in it. Um, I mean, it, we, we have to send you to an island, but on that note... It's safe to say you have continued to make more gold. It looks that way, but I, I also mean, it's you, been like it's been like nine years. So like, <laughs> you uh, say that with a gold face behind you of a BAFTA. <laughs> so I, I, this is a, a an audio presentation, but just to describe it, Adam has a lovely. I am assuming one of the brand new golden faces behind you. Yes, uh, that yes. you recently picked up. It's so temporarily first... temporarily staying here before it uh, travels to Pittsburgh to uh, stay with Scott and Bethany, who are the nice, uh, excellent. Well, there yeah. you go. The, your gold coin theory is almost almost correct. <laughs> <laughs> almost, almost, almost correct. But Adam, 
we have to get you to talk about other games and what is so special about the games that you've chosen yes, yes, before yes. sending you off to a deserted island, um, which uh, is both the good and the bad, it seems, of uh, this show in terms of some <laughs> some people just relish the chance to get away. Um, mm. But we are going to dive into your eight games and oh, I'm very excited to talk about this list. So let's listen to some incredible music from the first game on Adam's list and let's dive into his final games. So kicking off Adam's list today then is, I'm excited, we we have two games kicking off the list that are both tactics games, and anyone who knows the show, I am a huge fan of tactics based games, and I have recently non-stop been playing Into the Breach, um, mm. which, oh, which is talking about design gold, uh, that's one right there. Um, but oh, I can't get enough of tactics games, and to be able to kick off this list with two of them is a joy. But kicking off the first one is a tactical role-playing game developed and published by Squaresoft before they changed to Square Enix. Based on the Final Fantasy series, set in the uh, wonderful world that Matsuno uh, Yasumi made, the uh, director of them, you know, Final Fantasy XII, making Ivalice and that wonderful world. It's a sort of medieval-inspired kingdom, and we've had some guests on the show prior, uh, including um, Supergiant's wonderful... Oh, why am I forgetting his name now? <laughs> I forget his name. Made it must be Greg Kasavin. Greg Kasavin, of course, Greg Kasavin. Very early on in the show, who also chose this game. And he is one of the only people to actually choose a game he reviewed about 15 years prior, <laughs> which is exciting as well. But he compared it, and the, the lion war that takes place in this game, he compared it to uh, Game of Thrones in mm, its mm, in-depth mm. and storytelling, which is something I would definitely agree with. Um, but the next game, well, the first game, actually, on Adam's list is a game released in 1997 for the PlayStation. It's, of course, Final Fantasy Tactics. So, Adam, please tell me, why is this the first game on your list and why is it going with you? Uh, so, I had asked you previously, I was like, well, these are single-player games, right? Not multiplayer games. And you were like, well, you can do multiplayer as long as you don't talk to some anybody while you play. And I was thinking, well, what kind of bandwidth do we get from the island? Because that's a factor. Because I, really I mean, don't to... don't the, the the very minute technical details. I promise it... you, you don't have to worry. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I was thinking, I was like, you know, I really want to put Street Fighter Four on here because random pickup play in that game was a huge hobby for me for a long time, and I really valued it. Uh, but and I thought, you know, honestly, it's in a lot of ways 
it's a lot more interesting, I think, to try to really deliberately pit single pick single player games that I think can sustain interest without this outside influence without that's the a very random dice a, bag of of multiplayers it, that is a very deserted island thinking i like it yeah, so, so not not a way someone's approached it before i like that uh so that got me thinking like oh really the only game i need is a c compiler if i have a c <laughs> compiler i can just remake all the games that i really like and the tools <laughs> to make them and then i'm okay um, but I figured that probably doesn't count either, and that's kind of sidestepping the whole thing. And I thought, well, yeah. like, really, I can make my own C compiler as long as I have the machine code documentation. And I was like, okay, this is a, this is a bad thread. This is I'm way off the beaten path here. Uh, and I was thinking, like, well, I'm stuck on a deserted island, so I'm not really going to be short on things to do. I've got to go fishing. There's probably like birds to yeah, catch you, you've and got, eat. You've like, got to you've got to stay alive. I mean, we'll talk yeah. a little bit about the deserted place after this game, but yeah, you are right. You, you know, you've got to stay alive. So then I started thinking, like, really, on some level, what I'm bringing with me, I think, is more about music than about a lot of other things. Ah, um, okay. The 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 jukebox choice, as we've, we've come yeah, to Yeah, I think I think the jukebox choice is a pretty strong choice for a lot of reasons. But I also, I think a lot of the games that up until this point in my life I spent the most time playing are also games that just have incredible soundtracks, and I don't think that's a big coincidence. Um, and then also part of this. Part of this list in these choices is about like I'm a parent of two and a studio co-runner and I have no time to play games anymore. So this is just like a really <laughs> truly like a fantasy. This is like what if you could play any game you wanted for as long as you wanted and it's like oh my god what would I even do? So I'm yeah, trying like... to play God of War right now before it gets spoiled to me. I'm trying to mm. play it and just how people find the time to even play like a single player game for like 30 yeah. hours, let alone a ginormous JRPG these days is blows my it's, mind. So it's very confusing. Um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, Final Fantasy Tactics is my top choice because a it's super long. It's super grindy. It's a real good fit for a you have a bunch of time and nothing to do kind of a game. I think tactics games are like usually my go-to, especially tactics RPGs are my go-to. I have the flu. I'm not even a functioning human. I'm just going to put in <laughs> this weird uh, Nipponichi game and like... Disagaya or something. Yeah, and just waste, just waste. Uh, like I'm, I am barely functioning anyway. Why not do this? Um... So they're really great for that, but Final Fantasy Tactics also has this astounding soundtrack. It's like two or three hours of music, even when it's not looping, uh, and it, it has very, very particular instrumentation um, that uh, the composer actually doesn't really reuse on a lot of games. He touches on some of it in other games that are set in Ivalis, but it's like a very like yes. Ivalis specific. Yeah, it was, and instrumentation um, like, in a lot of ways. It was like completely different as well. They hadn't really had much experience prior to making sort of like video game music, uh, especially mm -hmm. not Final Fantasy music, because obviously it's completely dominated by uh, Nobuo-san. So yeah, they just kind of were allowed to do what they like and experiment with it, having this sort of medieval feel, but also it being limited to the PlayStation One sound chip, sort of 
Yeah. Oh, the, so yeah. they and they used a mix of it was not actual orchestral music, but it was like really fancy MIDI essentially. <laughs> uh, and they picked all these kind of MIDI samples or whatever that were very evocative and weird. They were they were these like these medieval sounding string instruments and um, the battle music uh, had this very particular kind of tone to it, and it was really different from a normal Final Fantasy or RPG sound. And you know, and it was just this colossal soundtrack. It was three, four hours of music. It was so huge, and it like followed you as you went around. And there would be this sort of like pastoral battle music when you were just out fighting slimes, and then there would be like really heart wrenching music during these like somehow things that pass for cutscenes. it's like two little sprites on a little diorama and like a <laughs> and little you're just so bubble. engrossed in yeah it. Just, uh, yeah it's really it was like it had a lot of that um it's just like a very hybrid game in so many ways like that storytelling sensibility from the 16-bit era um but not really fully going over to like the emerging more modern um it Final was like Fantasy this seven weird... eight cutscene yeah it was like this weird bridging gap between it had similar storytelling to final fantasy 6 and yeah the way that sort of hit on the emotional highs while also obviously not being anything like 7 but still was like getting to where square was trying to go with that type of storytelling yeah and also just matsuno's particular um approach to this stuff and his view of like what an rpg story may be could be or should be and the fact that it was um a little more western in some ways uh, yes there was yeah. this like weird political kind of shakespearean sensibility to it um right down to even like some of the names of the characters and that being a trait of this place in a lot of ways or and coming through in vagrant story and in crimson shroud and in final yeah. fantasy 12 especially the first half of the game before he got kind of semi-fired from working on it as i understand um <laughs> like uh that's this thing that he does and i just love it it's such a cool change of pace um from kind of normal rpg fare in some ways um especially from traditional japanese rpgs it's so aesthetically it it has the undertones of like a japanese person writing a westerns type story yes which happens in all those kind of games but it had a very western aesthetic the music the 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 character names the characters themselves the what they're inspired by and also ivalice itself you can see in any sort of scene from final fantasy 12 it just looks nothing like a yeah another jrpg and like and i i know that i just have like a soft spot for this stuff because you see it in you know full metal alchemist or in a lot of ghibli films like when the production staff you know when they take these like field trips to europe and then they come back and they produce this kind of like this sort of synthesized Europe via Japan yeah, version so, of Europe is it's really It's so funny you say that cool. because I never thought about that before but immediately when you said Full Metal Alchemist like just the the city itself was like exactly like a city from Final Fantasy 12 it mm-hmm. almost looks identical the way the brickwork is and the way they structure the streets in it. it looks almost identical I'd never put that 
together yeah, before. and there's a thread for this stuff you know there were french french comic book artists and japanese manga artists in the 70s had a lot of kind of overlapping interests and a lot of them were professional and personal friends and you know early in ghibli's history um i mean this is just one of miyasaki's hang-ups i think like even before he was at ghibli his like loop on the third film has this very european so it's very deliberately set in quote-unquote italy right yes yeah, super uh, italian it still yeah. is super italian but it's like also it has nothing to do with italy really you know like it's his yeah. own version of it and i think that is there's something about that that is um, I just think it's a great way to build a place to have it's, it's, one set of sensibilities be interpreting a different set of history, not do it in an appropriative way, but do it as a way of synthesizing a new so, place. It's so weird having lived here now for three years and seeing that prior to coming here through video games and sort of trying to understand why they do it that way. And I still don't mm. understand why they do it, but I can see it doesn't limit itself to video games. Japan is this weird country where they are of course so proud of themselves and Japan has a lot of soft power and they know exactly what they're good at but what they take from other countries especially in food because Japan and food like Japan's number one thing is food the thing they're so most proud of is food but when they take other country types of food for example Italian it has to be Japanese Italian it ha it's <laughs> it's not like it would be replicated in America or the UK or in other mm. parts of Europe where it would be like this is authentic Italian like Japan's one would be like we're making we're making pasta but we're not going to use tomato sauce we're going to use ketchup or we're going to put mayonnaise <laughs> on pizza or we're going to put potatoes on pizza or something like that they they do weird stuff that is weird to us but totally normal to them that make it like a Japanese version of it and they do it in so many things like restaurants they do it in the way buildings look they do it in video games they do it in music it's like you it's almost like a weird Frankenstein where you're like that is our culture but yeah. it's so Japanese at the I same time the thing that you get out of it though is you get something that's basically new like they're they're yeah. not making pizza or spaghetti really. They're making this new thing and you can like see the roots <laughs> yeah. in it. So like yeah, the the Ghibli stories that take place in Italy or Miyazaki stories that are set in basically Italy. So your Porco Rosso's and your Loop on the Thirds or um Kiki's Delivery Service which is kind of takes place in Sweden um kind versus of, yeah. like you know, there's all these things that, but it's not really Sweden exactly and like it's this um uh, uh, this sort of um, cultural mashup thing that produces these places that are, you know, at, there's a, I don't know, like at some point you're just like, I know I'll, I get European medieval, medieval stories, I get it. And Japanese RPG stories, like I get it. And then you stumble into this new stuff and it feels fresh uh, in some way because like they've, taken all these just weird ingredients and mix them together in such a weird way but that's part of it it's like part of it's that sense of place so it's the music it's the sort of uh europe by way of japan setting but then also yes. just the um all the insane overlapping systems like this is matsuno's greatest strength and greatest failing is like just systems on top of systems on top of systems on top of systems <laughs> with 
uh, no transparency about what's really going on under the hood, right? It's like there's the Zodiac system. There's the job system. There's 42 different classes of character. You don't even know where to find most of them. There's 10 different kinds of chocobos. And, <laughs> and it's hard as nails. Like if you haven't unpacked all of that stuff or you don't have the amount of free time that I had when I was 15, how do you learn to play Final Fantasy Tactics? Like what <laughs> Like what even are you supposed to do in there? But even that gives it this kind of mystique. There's this like sense of depth to it. There's a sense that it's just like, it could go, for all I know, it could go on forever. For all I yeah, know, there's a hundred different character classes. Like I don't even know. It's that whole school ground. Oh my god! I found like the the fire mage job class last night or something. It's like yeah, what? that doesn't exist. You're like no, no, seriously. Like I found it last night. It's like no, I've never heard of that. I've never seen anyone. No, it's like there's all these hidden away things that are perfectly normal in the game. Like they planned it and they were like, we're gonna do this here. But yeah. because of the limitations of being able to explain that while also wanting to match the scope of what you want. There's so much mystique and intrigue to those games of that era. Well, and, just... and somehow, like, the stuff that I usually hate in games where it's like, you found plus one metal boots, what do you do with them? Like, I normally hate that question, and in that game, I'm just like, oh, crap, what am I going to do with them? Let me look at all my characters <laughs> and all their different equipment and try to find a place where this definitely gives me an edge, because if I don't get this edge right, I don't get to play the next level. Because I'm going to get crushed by a slime in the woods. It's going to kill my whole crew. Yeah, if I put this on, am I going to be able to survive the next five hours yeah. without losing like my save or something yeah. like that? And there's no easy mode or anything. It's yeah. just like... Um, and it's so like... And that can feel... It can feel tone deaf at times, but it also feels like... Uh, you know, in, like... I don't know. This is probably projecting, but it feels like Matsuno has to like confidence in his players he's like yeah I mean, here's and this I here's a weird himself. story with weird characters and weird politics and a weird weird gameplay systems and a weird setting and i have a lot of confidence that you guys will be able to pull this apart and we'll figure out how it works and you know won't get lost in the machinations of the different factions in the kingdom like uh, and that felt cool. That felt like it was like, like that game does not pander to anyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, absolutely. it's like very Dark Soulsy in a in that very way. stubborn Japanese creator type way as well. Yeah, like this is what I wanted. This is what I did. Fuck mm -hmm. you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's very and, much like that. And I, I think like what, the th kinds of things that people get out of playing like a Dark Souls or a Bloodborne now, where it's like, geez, this is so uncompromising and you really have to put yourself in the sh you have to really reorient yourself and be able yeah. to listen to the game on its own terms i think that was um uh that was a I, th I think that was a big part of of loving that game and of wanting to spend more time with that game and of it just being completely unrealistic for me to spend more time with that game <laughs> uh, but if well, i'm trapped on a desert island exactly what a perfect right? place now you now you have the chance. And speaking of the deserted island, we should move on to the next tactics-based game. And also, speaking of the deserted place, so let's listen to some music from the next game on your list, a game from a series that unfortunately I think is rest in pieces now, rest in pepperonis, this, um, this series. Um, but it's such a wonderful series. So let's listen to some excellent music from this next game. And let's, of course, dive straight into it.
So before we jump into the second game, of course here on Final Games we're getting ready to send our wonderful guest to a deserted place. And Adam, we have to talk about this sort of wonderful fantasy land of free time that you're going to uh, have and and kind of this holiday that you're looking forward to. Um, obviously, the, the, the premise of being stuck on a deserted island doesn't sound very appealing, but, you know, we give you the, uh, the choice. So the caveat of this is that you can choose where you want to be stranded. It, it can be a deserted mm. place from anywhere within the realms of video games. Obviously, mm. it's deserted, so there's not going to be any NPCs who can help you out, who are going to build a boat for you if you collect five flowers from the ground in some sort of World of Warcraft-esque quest. Um, mm. But, you know, on deserted islands, there could be some dangerous wildlife, so you might have to be a little careful about your choices if there are enemies or dangerous wildlife. For example, like a Monster Hunter world or something like that. Probably, probably not the best place mm. to choose. So we allow you the choice. Is there? Is there immediately? Is there anything striking in your mind where you would like to? Uh, you'd like to relax playing some Final Fantasy Tactics. Oh, uh, yeah, probably. Uh, I I would have to go with uh, Isle Delfino from Super Mario Sunshine. I think. Excellent choice. Uh, A very very picturesque, very safe, <laughs> and yeah. um, generally wonderful place to be. Yeah, I figure like part of it too is like that that uh, that background music. I know for a fact can loop for ten hours, and I'm do, fine do, with do, it. Do, 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 yeah. do, do, do. <laughs> I'm just, that was perfectly fine. Yeah. <laughs> well, totally we'll solid. send you that, and I've I think I've offered this choice up before. You can have like a little button that's that's on like maybe the statue of like the mm, Delfino mm. person. Oh yeah. Like you and you can turn the background music on and off. So if it does get a little <laughs> annoying, you can just like turn it off, and then the next day you wake up, you're like, da, 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 just yeah, I gotta go. Head. I gotta go get some fruit and you know. <laughs> well, good. then the next game that you're gonna be taking with you too. The uh, the wonderful Isle of Delfino, listening to some music. I mean, you could turn the Delfino music off for this next game because mm, mm, mm. this series of games has some wonderful music, I think. Um, yeah. It's developed by one of my favorite sort of Japanese side developers, which is Intelligent Systems. I'm a huge Fire Emblem fan. Uh, both these series are, I love. Uh, but a lot of people usually have like a, a favorite between the two. Mm -hmm, um, they mm -hmm. are very different. Um, but Intelligent Systems do wonderful works in RPGs and tactics games in general. It originally released on the Game Boy Advance. It had a Wii U Virtual Console release uh, maybe 2015, I think. Hmm. Uh, it originally released, though, back in 2003. I can't believe that this game has not aged at all, even when I'm looking at it right now. It looks so yeah. wonderful. It's part of the Advance Wars series, and it is Advance Wars 2. Black Hole Rising, the the second game in the series, actually. I'm quite surprised. So, Adam, why is it that you're taking Advance Wars 2 Black Hole Rising with you? Uh, I mean, big factor is the music, for sure. Uh, it's got a really good soundtrack in the way that they swap out the musics depending on you know uh whose turn it is in the game and what's the state of the game have you used your yeah. you know co power yet uh are you in the middle of a battle and uh all of that stuff i think is really nice i think the other um thing that i didn't grow to understand about like when i first started playing i was just like this is incredible like the what 
what designers like magicked this game out of thin air <laughs> like yeah there was a previous game but like what the heck and part of it is like um it's a little bit like dark souls in that it's actually like the fifth or sixth game in the series and like a lot of people just don't know it there's yes famicom was, wars um, there's super famicom wars yeah, the and original super nintendo games that never yeah. made it to western shores it started yeah. with advance wars on the game boy advance yeah, and then there's Advance Wars, and then there's Advance Wars 2. So, like, this is a team that's gotten to, like, iterate on some of the core kind of tactics gameplay ideas that they think are really cool and iterate on their mm. universe. Uh, well, it's, it's like, really funny you say that specifically for number two, because number two was kind of, although it was it was praised because Advance Wars is a great series, number two was definitely seen as, like, an expansion because it didn't change that much from the first yeah, one. Yeah, it's I think in a lot of ways it's like a... Yeah, it's like an ultimate edition or deluxe yes, edition. Yes, it or is. It's like, like an ultimate remastered edition before that was even like a concept. Yeah, yeah. So you just you're like I don't know, put a two on it or whatever. But I think it was really like <laughs> they wanted to take everything that was the first I don't know, like ten years of this wars wars world series of games or whatever, and just like put a dang stamp on it before they went off and tried to do anything else. Yeah. And it's just it's just such a gem. Like everything in it is perfect. Every menu is perfect. The UI is perfect. The music is per like it's so neat and t it all feels like a little like Polly Pocket or something, especially when it was on Game Boy Advance. Like you'd flip open your little clamshell thing, and there was a little <laughs> tiny world, and it was like little tiny tanks, and but every tank was actually ten even smaller tanks, right? And or five little smaller tanks, and every little guy on the map was actually ten even smaller guys, and it was just this like little, um, this little microcosm, this little teeny tiny weird chess, and it had perfect sounds and perfect animations and. Um, uh, and and perfectly balanced in a lot of ways. Oh, uh, apart from when you use the CO powers, because oh, oh my yeah. god, <laughs> yeah, and they would and yeah, the whole like anime cutscene thing. You're like, I uh, well, CO powers. What are those? And suddenly there's like <laughs> flashing <laughs> lights, and the music completely changes, and uh, yeah, it's just uh. It's just the most perfect little game, and and it, under all of that stuff is a game that's really hard to, uh, <laughs> you know, like it's it's really uh, or not not just hard. I think it's demanding. I think it asks you to understand a lot of the systems before it allows you to advance uh, through. It is the it's the ultimate know. example, I think, of aesthetic over the gameplay demand of the player. You have this very bright, wonderful, almost Mario World-esque graphics. Like, the pixel art is very reminiscent yeah. of Super Mario World's Yoshi's Island. Like, it looks like that. That's the, like, pa like palette of colors they go for. But mm -hmm. then when you get into it, you are playing fucking... You are playing World War Chess. And yeah. if you make one wrong move, you are going to lose. It's really it, nitty gritty, but they also don't ask you to just memorize 10 trillion things. They're just like, listen, everything in this game is governed by like, as opposed to like a Monsuno game, like it's very different from Final Fantasy Tactics in this way. Like the Wars games, it was just like, listen, we have like two systems. There's rock, paper, scissors, and there's this little numbers thing. Yeah. And, you know, that's really all we're asking you to, to keep track of. And it always felt like a really fair 
proposition to me. It felt really fair for them to be like, listen, this is going to be demanding, but we are only asking you to keep track of like these two things. And we think you can do it. We think you can keep track of that. And they also, they had all these nice things that I think actually come out again in something like Into the Breach or in a lot of really good board games where yeah. the actual victory state for a lot of the missions was kind of indirect. It, the you know the idea was to capture the cities. It wasn't it, just Yeah, it wasn't to, just to wipe out everyone on the map. Yeah. Was, you had like a strategic purpose that you're there to do. Yeah, and I think just that one little shift, just saying it's not about wiping everyone out, it's about capturing the cities, um, has is such a simple idea to think about. It's a very capture the flag, it's for t territory control. Like We have all these like, mappings for it, but the downstream pressure that puts on the strategies that you have to pick as a player, suddenly your interests are divided. Cities can only be captured by your weakest units. And so you automatically have, because you're like, well, they're people. People go into the cities and capture them. Uh, but cities also provide a lot of defensive cover. So if you can get your people to cities, then they're like a little safer in there. But you, you just automatically at a base level have to decide. You can't just say, I want all the biggest tanks. Even if you had the money to do that, you can't win a level that way. You have yeah. to have this mix of units just because of this indirect goal. And so you and you automatically start thinking like, okay, I'm gonna send out I'm gonna send these guys out, but I'm they're gonna travel with a stronger unit who can help keep them safe around the city while they get there. Yeah. Uh, and uh and then on top of that, kind of changing up the subsets of units that you get to use, the palette or the gamut of units that you get to use by changing up who the commanders are and layering in the powers on top of that. It's just like everything that you want from a good board game. Uh, and somehow it's on this little teeny tiny postage stamp <laughs> screen that can go anywhere with you. It's like, it's such a, uh, it's such a generous, like... Um, it's such a treat. It's such a cool, like, uh, in some ways, it's like everything that I would ever want from a video game. It's in your pocket. It's... Just And the fact that it just exists, like, this very yeah. simple thing, like, just to come out for a handheld, you know, 2003, that era, just this thing and it's like wow what a what a gem like that we have and yeah that, it's part of it is like just... it's like it's like a joy in the fact that it was made in addition yeah. like the, <laughs> yeah, the thing itself is yes. a source of great joy but like this is my i'm uh for better or for worse semi semi well known for liking the movie speed racer slightly too much but like that movie <laughs> is a lot of the appeal is the same to me like i enjoy the movie very much but the part of the joy of it is that it was made at all that somebody was able to make it that somebody got all these clockwork pieces to fit together and packaged it up in this thing and that you don't have to be a movie nerd to be able to feel a lot of the things that it wants you to feel like it works really hard like the idea of like making this is why like one of the reasons dark souls isn't on this list is i think that as marvelous as that game is nobody on that project did what these other projects did like what advance wars does which is make these um uh make the right kinds of concessions to a total stranger to like invite them in 
and yeah. help them learn to speak the language, you know, and not, not cheat, not make it easier, not make it, you know, um, not make it casual, but to, um, to be welcoming at all. Uh, and to, yeah, have these strangers come in and be able to like, uh, like want people to come in and take the systems apart and discover it's... that there's so much more there than meets the eye. Yeah. And it's uh, that one of those things where you can almost feel the developer passion. It's something mm-hmm. that we, we don't really talk about when it comes to bigger studios and intelligence systems, of course, aren't the biggest studio, but they're still like a subsidiary of Nintendo. And, yeah. you know, Nintendo's one of the biggest video games consoles in the, uh, companies in the world. So, but you can feel the, the, the minute details of passion. And it's something that I love about Japan in general and what continues to keep me here is just the passion that people put into their jobs, even if no one will see it. And Advance Wars feels like the epitome of that when it comes to video games. Obviously, it is a very successful series to the uh, that era. Obviously, it doesn't really exist now, but yeah. there are so many people who loved it. But you could feel that, and in, well, it has in really the actually, way yeah. created it, it, you know, going back to what you were saying, like it made you care about everything, like your units. Yeah. Like you, so many games struggle to make you care about smaller units. Like why would I want an infantry unit over a big tank? Like why would I want that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, and it's it just so built many small in. things like that. And on top of all this stuff, like the the raw visual style, the little the chibi industrial design of all the vehicles, the design of the COs, like uh, it's uh, I think really really ahead of its time in a lot of ways. Like you would expect, yes. like the level of detail that was put into distinguishing the attitudes and characteristics and silhouettes and color palettes of all the different COs is the kind of thing that you expect to see in like the Dota 2 visual guidebook or something. Yeah. Right? Like they and they were they were so far out in front of that stuff. Like every CO has a perfect silhouette and a a, a characterization to match and a CO power to match. Like the level of the amount of effort and the level of detail that went into like theming all of those things together so that as much as possible you're like oh this is the lazy sneaky co and this is the big muscly aggressive co and (laughs) like those things as sort of enjoyable anime tropes but also as teaching tools as ways of reminding you of the particular strengths and weaknesses of the subset of units that you are being given access to on this particular puzzle board like they got to they got to do it. They got to do all the pieces. They got to make all the pieces fit together. And uh, yeah, just... And, and now uh, you're making me sad that we haven't seen one for so long. <laughs> and I did like Days of Ruin. I actually did like Days of Ruin. Not yeah, many people the, did. A Days lot of, of Ruin the, the changed dual... the aesthetic, I think. People didn't like that. But I liked it. I still thought mm-hmm. it was a very good game. Well, I think Dual Strike, in a lot of ways, was the peak in terms of accessibility i think black hole rising is still just hard in a way that makes it difficult to get into and dual strike was rebalanced in a way that made the levels just a little shorter you know you got like 15 20 minute levels instead of like 45 to 60 minute levels and that um i think that makes a huge difference in terms of 
like getting most of the things that are really cool about that game in front of as big an audience as you can but i still have a sweet spot for black hole rising for sure yeah well, back to Into the Breach I go. Very sad. And, <laughs> although Into the Breach is fantastic. And you can see Into the Breach being, you know, one of 2018's like most incredible design-like masterpieces. Mm-hmm. And it stems from elements from a game from 20, 2003, 2001 in this series that no longer doesn't even exist. So yeah. it tells you. If you've never played Advance Wars and you listen to this and you wonder why... The, on this show, we've had it happen a few times. This tiny Game Boy Advance game that looks really colorful. Just go play it. Honestly, go mm-hmm. play it. But we're going to move on to the next game now. And this is the only game on the list that I don't actually know about. So oh. I'm going to have to have you, Adam, really give me the pitch on this one and why you're going to take it. So let's listen Not to a some problem. music from it. Oh, excellent. Let's listen to some music from it. And let's, of course, dive straight into the next game. So jumping into the next game now, and as I said just before the music, this is the only game on the list that I haven't played and I don't really know about. I do know the developers, Zaktronics, and uh, the previous game, Space Chem. I do know that game. It's a wonderful game. But the game that Adam has chosen is a game called, and I hope I pronounce this correctly because I always suck with Finny type things like Finny G, like Adam's studio and stuff like that. And Even though I can speak Japanese, I don't know why I can't say that very, very well. Maybe it's being British. Um, but this uh, next game is a game that was developed by Zektronics and released back uh, on PC in 2015, as well as Mac and uh, Linux. But it released on PlayStation 4 a little later in 2015, in December, just before the turn of the year. It's a puzzle video game and it's called Infini Factory. I believe that's how you pronounce it. Adam's giving me the nod. Close enough. Close enough. Okay. So the sort of, um, the pitch is that you're a, you're a human abducted by aliens and you're forced to construct assembly lines to create objects for the aliens purpose, I guess. Um, Mm -hmm. Adam, what is this game and why are you taking it with you? Uh, this is, so, this is the closest thing to, so there's a few games on this list that are, that are picked for an overlap between a particular kind of, um, uh, problem solving state of mind or problem solving set of values or something that I am just inclined to be a little bit obsessed with, uh, combined with having very nice music for solving those problems. Excellent. Um, And this particular game is, uh, if your job is you are a game developer and programmer, uh, most games that Zaktronics makes are just like, it's all the same satisfactions that you get out of doing your creative job, except with no pressure and very nice music. 
And it's very, very easy to accidentally just play his games instead of doing your job. Uh, and um, so I don't think these are games that are quote unquote for everyone or anything like that. But the things that they do are pretty remarkable. And I think the, the way I've described it in the past, and this could have been like this, this slot on the desert island could pretty much be any game from their lineup. It could be Space Chem, it could be Infinifactory, it could be Shenzhen IO, it could be TIS 100, it could be Opus Magnum. Um, their uh, uh, Infinifactory has my favorite soundtrack, so okay. even though it has the worst name of all of his titles, I decided to <laughs> slot that one in. Um, it also has, it has a level of expressivity that I think is pretty nifty. Um, and I haven't, I probably should have picked Shenzhen IO, but it's the only one I haven't played yet because I had to ship Night in the Woods. And as previously stated, you kind of can, if you play this guy's games and you have my job, then you stop doing your job and it's bad. Um, but the thing that he does, the, the pitch I would give for this guy's games is at some point, um, Zach, who also, um, Infinifactory is also a little bit of a reference back to Infiniminer, which was um, a weird little open source, uh, not, I don't know if it was open source, a little free indie game that he made years and years and years ago that um, Minecraft started as a clone of. Um, wow. So like Zach's, Zach's head is in a really cool space a lot of the time. And Infinifactory takes a lot of the ideas from Infiniminer and from Space Chem and smashes them together. So it's a 3D game and your um, space chem factory parts are little cubes that you stitch together uh, and make little factory assembly lines out of them. Uh, but all of his game, all not all of his games, but this main through line of what people really think of as a classic Zachtronics game is all about the idea, to me, of what if instead of solving a puzzle, you had to build machines that were able to solve puzzles. Uh, in a lot of ways. So in a Zactronics game, the puzzle isn't how do you put this rocket together? It's how do you create something that can sustainably assemble a series of rockets? Uh, and it's not how do, you, um, how do you puzzle together the atoms to make this molecule? It's how do you make a little machine that can sustainably, repeatedly collect the raw materials for this atom and deposit the produced atom at, or molecule at the end of the road, right? So he's taken like, it's like one step out from a puzzle game. It's like make little machines that will solve puzzles for you, kind of. It's like, build, puzzle, it's like building a computer game. Like, in a, a lot of ways. You were about to say, yeah. Yes. It's almost like semi-explicitly that, and actually TIS-100 and Shenzhen IO both are based around simple scripting languages where you actually type out code that runs in parallel, similar to like uh, an extreme parallel risk chip or something like that. Um, but uh, yeah, this particular approach uh, uh, or this way of thinking about how to solve problems is just so near and dear to me. And the other, I think the other sort of like, um, uh, the other stroke of brilliance that it was in Space Chem and has just continued to evolve across all of the other games is uh, the game tries to, there's not really, um, uh, a high score as such. There's not really a, you got the gold medal for solving the level or whatever. Like they, um, he, the game gives you feedback on these different axes. So maybe you build um, a machine that can assemble rockets really, 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 really quickly. 
but in order to do that, it has to assemble 10 rockets at a time. And so it's okay. this colossal machine that takes up <laughs> the entire level, but it makes all the rockets in four seconds. Uh, and the game will say, like, good job. You, you scored really well on how long it took, but really badly on how much space it took up. And ah, so you can okay. actually go back and design a completely new machine that takes up almost no space and takes 42 years to build the 10 rockets, um, but it's you know only made out of seven moving parts. Um, and Infinifactory also has the very weird affordance. One of the axes they decided to give you feedback on or score you on is basically square footage, but from the top down. Um, so there's like, how many parts did you use? How fast were you able to do it? But also how much, you know, what's the footprint of this thing that you built, which has the downstream consequence similar to Advance Wars of incentivizing the creation of these very tall, thin vertical factories that okay. assemble parts in an extremely convoluted way. But then you're, you have almost like a, you have these weird one-dimensional factories that just take up no ground space. Um, and these are, again, just like, it's just like the indirect notion of like, well, you have to capture cities instead of just killing everyone um, that pushes you out into thinking about different ways to use the same parts. You know, like normally so if I was assembling 10 rockets at once, I would use a tremendous number of conveyor belts, but the actual yeah. assembly process is very, very simple and brute force and it's just a matter of synchronizing the drop-off so they don't collide. Okay. So it, but, isn't, it isn't just about completing the goal. It's about uh, how efficient you can be. Yeah, completing the goal is like your basic literacy in the problem space. It's like, okay, I figured out how to make some rockets, but what are the different ways that we could make rockets excellently? You know? Ah, okay. Uh, and also, so it's it's less it's less um, a, a Kerbal Space Program and more. I don't know. How, I don't even know what to compare it to. Yeah, they're very. I think they're very much in a class of their own as a kind of a game in a lot of ways. Most games don't um, score you this way or think about or give you feedback on your weird discoveries this way. And there's a, a huge degree of personal expression in this stuff. There's a huge degree of thinking, um, you know, in, uh, in a... a, 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 a a lame startup you would call this like lateral thinking or something like that right but it's yes. like you've got this box of legos and you're trying to um do something that seems impossible at first you know because yeah. uh, maybe you've seen your friend has this high score on this level your friend has figured out how to assemble 10 rockets in only three seconds and your machine takes four seconds but you know that your machine is the best machine you've been over it like 20 times how did they get three seconds and sort of like going back and looking at all the Lego parts you have and then realizing, oh, I didn't even realize I can take out this whole section. You don't even need this. There's a much simpler way to assemble these parts. I was doing it. I thought I had the simplest way, but it was more complicated than I thought it could be or needed to be. And actually, you can just throw them off the edge and they'll just land. You know, they'll just stack up <laughs> on their own and you can shoot them off. Into the thing. Uh, and it's like that feeling that little moment of thinking that you were the smartest and then realizing that you're not the smartest 
and having to go back and start questioning all these assumptions that you had made about your own work and then going back and throwing all your work in the garbage and rebuilding it like um a game that i think uh, a game that achieves this feeling in a very different and much more accessible way would be like mini metro which i probably yeah. should have put on this list but it's not going to make the cut um where uh, you know to proceed in mini metro on the normal game settings you are constantly you make the best subway you can make and then you delete it all 30 seconds later and you remake it from scratch because the constraints of the problem have changed yes. and you to do to do it optimally you have to rebuild it uh, and it's not a matter of you're not just always adding on you're frequently tearing down and replacing and that is so much closer to what it's like to actually be a game designer or to be an industrial designer or to be a graphic designer or to be a writer or to make movies like this process of making something that really was good and having to throw it away because it's not good enough. And That's the weird thing that I think about new. as someone who likes to design his own games and sort of. It is, Zach is beyond smart and, and it, on levels that I would never reach to in my own creative thinking but I always wonder about how you would how you build especially puzzle games in general but games like this where how do you start when the idea is not to reach a goal but to be as efficient as possible to to get to the bare minimum of completing the goal but at a speed or a size or the the constraint of something do you do you start out by building the most perfect machine and reverse engineering that to be like okay this is the gameplay constraints we're going to have to go to but then you have to build the most perfect machine anyway so right. how do you do that we actually so we actually i actually cloned a I made like a little Zactronics clone with my friend Martin Janassen over christmas we spent like 2 weeks and yeah. uh, the theme is a little more like it's like a we try to come up with something approachable as per my neuroses and hangups um, and made it like a farm thing. So it's like you have to farm wheat and send it to a flour mill and then you can send the flour to a bakery. But then you also have to get eggs from the chickens and send the flour and the eggs to the bakery to make a loaf of bread. And if uh, and you also have to get milk from cows to make the bread. And so you have all these sort of like children's storybook, medieval times sort of um, uh, pipeline of production stuff. And then if your pipeline is bad, then some of your food rots because it's not being used optimally or whatever. Yeah. And the process of designing that and building it was uh, the same as making any other game pretty much. It was just this, it was a very, it was very playful. It was very experimental. It was very iterative. It was uh, very much a, I don't know exactly what Zach's process is, but I know that uh, I'm pretty sure that it is a little more discovery based than it is, you know, sitting down and saying, aha, this shall be the next thing. Yeah, like a lot of like, it is having I a will... notion like, yeah, yeah, I think these yeah. will work. I'll test them, but the limits of what these are and the heights you can reach, I have no idea. Players yeah, will like, discover think, that themselves. I think there's mileage in this cluster of ideas. Um, so what I'm going <laughs> to do cluster. is put them. <laughs> I'm going to put these things near each other and see yeah. what happens. And oh, this one just doesn't have the mileage yet. So we'll set it aside, take some notes, try a different one. Yeah, and eventually you find something where it's like, oh, the. 
uh, the, all the little pieces of this are starting to add up. And oh, and and the thing that I always want is, you know, the thing that I always think is a good sign is like, you don't know, um, you can't guess in your head if it's going to be good or not. Um, that means that somewhere in this system is something surprising, like somewhere in this system is something emergent, which means there might be something expressive, which means, yeah. you know, the joy of discovering that as a designer, I think is always... Uh, really promising because that means that is the kind of thing that a player might also discover and they might also feel the way I'm feeling at the moment of discovering this and that's a cool feeling especially in this kind of a game excellent um, oh, I love thinking about this and the ideas of games that I would struggle to create myself like I just can't I, going back to lateral thinking like I can't think even on that plane sometimes let alone mm. playing it is is sometimes difficult but creating something like that but the idea to think about how someone would go about that is as a, incredible to me as playing and discovering through that as well especially when you find some emerging that maybe the designer didn't expect but you're like wow this happened and it just blows everyone's mind which yeah. is incredible but speaking of physics and um, messing around with I, I, I would go as far as to say emergent. Uh, the experiences you can have in this game are both wild, varied, and incredibly unexpected sometimes. And you kind of put down any from this series. Um, it's kind of digging into the series as a whole. It, it hasn't changed too much. I would say there is particularly one for me, the, the HD version that, originally released on the Xbox 360, is very much a pinnacle of why this series is so great. But we can get into that after listening to some music. So let's listen to some music from the next game on Adam's List. And let's, of course, dive straight into it. So jumping into the next series or game, um, Adam did put down Trials, uh, in mm. brackets, any from this series, <laughs> which is yes. always fun. Um, I'm going to throw one at him, which is Trials HD, because that's that was the my... one I played the most of. Also. Yeah, that's the one I played most, uh, and that's the one that first entered my sort of periphery. I'd played Flesh esque trials games prior mm -hmm. i don't think it was the actual trials flash games that were no, it, was, it pre was predated yeah there's a there yeah. were flash games i can't remember what they're called off the top of my head now the ones that used to roll down right. the hills and you used to have to gas the engine to get the balance yeah. they were 
Yeah, a lot, that of was the, like... a lot of the 2D mechanics were pioneered by unrelated Flash developers before yeah. Trials HD came together. Yes, um, absolutely. There was a whole sort of genre of it. I remember mm-hmm. the, all these physics-based 2D games. Um, but this one took the world by storm and was an incredible success. It released back in 2009 for the Xbox 360 Live Arcade. It was developed by Red Links, um, who have since gone on to you know sort of be a subsidiary of Ubisoft and mm. have created following games. Um, but this game was amazing, and I spent hundreds of hours in university playing this game. <laughs> I can't believe it was uh, originally released in one of. The, do you remember the summer of arcades? When uh-huh. uh, Xbox Live used to release all those wonderful games and we had just, it, it would become summertime and all of a sudden we'd have this brand new indie darling that would appear on the stage that everyone was yeah. talking about. Trials was one of, Trials was one of those. Um, but Adam, less about me. Why is it that you are taking Trials? Uh, I think it's mostly a little bit like we were talking about earlier, this idea of course correction games. Yes. Um, so your track this is massive your course trials, correction though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's frequently huge, but it like it also so many of the moments boil down to this almost like rhythm game aesthetic of like I'm just trying this or like playing a musical instrument, learning to play the piano and having just the right touch or something like that. It's like a very easy piano. Uh and uh you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of the way that trials is dressed up that are not really not a thing. I'm I'm not like bro motocross culture or whatever is not. <laughs> I have know, no attachment to yeah, that. Yeah, I don't have a lot of investment there. This is the one game on the list where the music just doesn't speak to me on any <laughs> level. It's just present. Um, Do you think you we could it? just like we could put Final Fantasy Tactics on in the background, <laughs> leave it on yeah, the yeah, yeah. theme, and just mute? Maybe only put the sound effects on so you have the gas sounds for the bike. Yeah, and that, that's something, it. something like that. Uh, not, not, <laughs> and nothing against the musicians or the composers or or anybody. It's just like the appeal of this game lies on very, very explicitly in um, marvelous level design. Yes, uh, and these. Um, I think really uh, they've done a thing. It's almost like a, a, a Bennett Foddy game or something like that. Like they've said, you know, they've given you this pitch. They've said like, it's, yes, it's motorcycles. All you do is press the gas and lean forward and back. There's really not much to it. That's all and, you have to do. Yeah, there's just a couple of buttons. Uh, <laughs> and it's it's insane. It feels nothing like any, if you have never played a Trials game, there's no or the Flash predecessors, like, there's no part of your brain that's ready for the fact that, like, you press, you're like, oh, it's a motorcycle game, so you press the gas and your bike flips over and you have to restart the level, right? Like, they've, (laughs) like, like, rethought all this, like, the whole idea is very borderline trolley or something, Um, and what you learn over time is that by having the very easy things be completely broken, and forcing you to like relearn the like like norm like you think of like a excite bike or something you're just like I press the gas and the and the motorcycle goes forward in this game the physics is all done for me I don't yeah. have to I don't have to think yeah. about real world applications you can't even press the gas to go forward in this game right like they've uh, they've thrown that out but what you realize is what that gives you later is this ability to be uh, impossibly acrobatic to do things like. <laughs> Like the way that the game 
slowly, that you learn bit by bit how to do things that are increased, like, like this curve from like, oh, I can do something really basic now. I feel good. I relearned something I'm like a baby learning to crawl again. Awesome. And then like, whoa, I did a, I did quite a stunt there. I'm, I'm quite cool uh, up to like, wow, I'm doing some pretty tricky stunts up to like, this isn't even really a game about motorcycles anymore. <laughs> you know, I did six backflips, landed on my front tire and then balanced a plank. Yeah, a or I used the <laughs> fender over the front tire like a lobster claw to like swing myself <laughs> off of a ledge before <laughs> Or like doing a thing and like you start like it slowly becomes like more and more abstract up to a point where you're not even really seeing motocross anything anymore what you see are forces and a couple of circles and a couple of um you know rectangles and you're thinking about all the different ways that you can use this little swiss army knife physics shape to sort of uh, uh, navigate this weird gravity heavy puzzle space in real time. And the doing of that is the music of learning to play it uh, yes. on some level. And it's um, uh, just like that, that transformation and your understanding of the game changing as you play it and the way that the level design is approached and sequenced and the way that they use humor to cushion your failures to encourage you to stick around and learn all the nooks and crannies and the their um, sensibility about the kind of uh, just barely possible kinds of obstacles to send at you over and over and over and over and over uh, is just... Um, it's just outstanding. It's just outstanding game design, period. And I think a lot of games on my list are the kinds of games that, you know, regardless of what I see in them as these really brilliant um, concessions to accessibility, are still games that wouldn't appeal outside of a pretty mainstream gaming audience. Like, even Advance yes. Wars is not a game that has what I would call, like, it doesn't have that Madden audience and Trials does. And Trials is so technical. It's so dorky. It's the dorkiest game. And they have found a way to communicate and participate with an audience that I think normally would not be attracted to this kind of game and this kind of puzzle and problem solving. And they did it by making everything stupid motorcycles. And like that <laughs> is really, I genuinely am inspired by and impressed by those, by that outcome. I don't know how much of that was, I don't know if this, I doubt very much this was a case of people sitting down going like, let's make a, an astonishing physics-based abstract game, but we will trick bros into enjoying it by making it. <laughs> like, like I know that like it had to be more genuine than that. It had to be more whatever than that, but at the end of the day you've got this game that is really truly strange yeah and uh is enjoyed by this huge audience of people and that's brilliant and it, that's what what more offers, can you ask for it offers up this weird thing that not many games do where your goal orientation changes like in the beginning just passing the course and getting through it 
using that sort of shovel knight system of putting the carrot in front of you where you can you can take the checkpoint now but you will not get the perfect score but you'll mm-hmm. pass the course after a, mm-hmm. a, you will definitely pass the course after a, an you know a, a certain amount of time you will definitely do it and you will be able to say to your friends you passed that really difficult course that's one basic goal but then on top of that you got the next level which is if i fall i restart from the start and i get the time and i beat the yeah. leaderboard and then on top of that you've got the I'm going to skip as much of this level as I can by bouncing off this thing. And then the amount of like different goal orientation on top of the design of the level itself, just the, the basic system around it on top of that, the physics system, around, it's just yeah. like design perfection. Well, and times. now, now that you're saying it that way, like I see like the through lines between this kind of game and another game we're going to talk about later and Infinifactory are all the same in that at first they're really just encouraging you to do this thing. Just do this one thing, just get through it. Okay. Now come back and try it again later. Question, yeah. question your assumptions about the way that you solve this and break apart the problem. Think about now that you've learned more things about the way that you talk and move and behave in this particular game, question your previous solutions and come up with something and not just don't go through and do what you did better. Throw away what you did and make up a new way to do it. Look Uh, at your own growth and see where that can take you like what is it that you can do now to experiment upon what you've already done yeah it sounds insane but i think in a lot of ways i think trials is like uh just a it's got a lot in common with zactronics games and mini metro that way and it's a thing that um I just find so totally compelling and it's almost, it's not even, I think people get really hung up. They're like, oh, it's fun to have silver, bronze, silver, and gold medals. And it's like, no, 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 no. Those are a means to an end. Like, yes. Cause Infinifactory doesn't have that stuff. Like what I want is that little moment of going, oh, you can skip it. Yeah. If you do this dumb thing, you can go completely <laughs> over the top of it. And that saves you point one one seconds that's huge (laughs) that's huge like i'm like always chasing that feeling and that's true in my work as a game designer too that's a huge part of the thrill of making something is realizing like we don't even need this screen throw it all away get rid of all of it you can just we can just go straight from this to this tricking the player into believing they they're breaking the game breaking what you purposely built Mm. while crafting that in the background like behind the shadows is the ultimate the ultimate thing and and allowing players to almost come to that goal themselves going above and beyond what the game advertises itself is is master yeah and i think it's very different from you know the way you might do this in a lot of platforming games is you know oh there's some coins to get but they're out of reach so you're gonna have to come back later when you have double jump or something like that, right? Yes. And this is like, this is, to me, this is so, so, so different from that. This is, you know, your literacy has changed in some fundamental way, and you're going to come back to a place where there are no coins, uh, and you are still going to work on breaking this problem apart and finding a new way to put the pieces back together. And I don't know, I think that's a cool... Uh, I'm I'm clearly like 
a huge sucker for this. Like, <laughs> I wouldn't do the work that I do or play these games the way I played them if this wasn't just, um, like, setting off whatever it is that people get when they do heroin, you know? Like, whatever this is, these little epiphanies, these little rewrite it rewrite it but smaller and lighter and better like that um like like feeling good about that feeling like the way that i played a trials level is very similar to i found a way to rewrite this function yes that optimization juice like whatever that is um yeah a big big sucker probably half the games on my list are games that i think uh provide different ways of accessing this yes uh, they are systems that are designed with the specific sometimes not in the specific purpose of doing stuff like that but so cleverly crafted to allow that like going back to the zactronic ones maybe that's not the expressive or intended purpose to do that Mm. but it's like this guy's this guy is the the limit yeah and then there's always can, a way to take off another you can another get, you hundredth can go of a beyond. second yeah you can go beyond and speaking of going beyond we should really move on to the next game because oh, yes. i'm extremely excited to hear about what you have to say about the next game we have had the wonderful derek you on the show before and mm. derek's choices this is what i love about people who make games like yourself and derek who make very system driven games that have like uh, the in it like you iterating and iterating to make it simpler and better and all that kind of thing the same as derek did with spelunky and then the the games you choose the reasons as to why are so interesting i don't mm. know about anyone listening but to me it's so interesting and <laughs> yeah, sorry to he, else. yeah <laughs> i i don't care <laughs> <laughs> for me this is interesting to infinity um but I'm very much looking forward to hear what you have to say about the next game. I think people can guess what it is. Let's listen to some music from the next game. Some very peaceful but cave dread. (laughs) A little bit of dread. Hmm. Let's listen to some music and let's, of course, dive right into the next game. So I think the next game 
on Adam's list doesn't really need any introduction. It was, of course, developed by Moss Mouth, by Mr. Derek Yu initially, uh, with some programming help from Andy Hull. It was originally released as a sort of uh, open source uh, freeware game. It developed in Game Maker, released on mm. PC back in 2008. Whew, all the way back then. But it was then remade and re-released for the Xbox 360 in 2012. It's since gone on to be on the PlayStation 3, the PlayStation Vita, the PlayStation 4. I imagine Derek has all manner of things to go for Spelunky, considering Spelunky 2 was announced last year, mm. uh, which was very exciting. Of course, the next game on Adam's list, I am so excited to hear why you are taking this, Adam. Spelunky is the next game, Adam. I mean, who wouldn't take that? Actually, I know lots of people who wouldn't take this to a desert island. <laughs> um, but, uh, I mean, it's, I mean, for so many reasons, like the uh, games that Derek works on have, there's something about the quality of them that makes me excited about making games again. Um, and which, and very, very, very few games have this quality. Um, I think Derek's games and also, um, uh, Pixels games, um, Daisuke Amaya, who did like Cave Story and, um, yes. the, uh, Frog thingy and all the little things associated Carol with that. Blaster. Yeah. Carol Blaster. Yeah. Carol uh, their games, there is something about them. There's an ineffable, there's a joy in the making of them or a certain kind of a consistency or something. I don't know what it is. And whatever I dis, whatever I decide is the thing that attracts me to these games or that makes me feel inspired by these games, I'm certain that I will be wrong or overanalyzing it. But um, <laughs> there is something about them that, um, just gets me so jazzed about making stuff. And I've been making stuff for a long time. I'm not always, I don't wake up every morning thinking like, I'm going to make games today uh, and feel good about that process for the 7,000th day in a row. Like that doesn't happen every single day. But if you um, play a Spelunky or an Aquaria or, um, you know, Time Barons, or it's just like... Uh, there's something about um, there's something about the way that Derek makes games that reminds me of why I like to make games, and I just value that a lot. In addition to that, Spelunky is just a great game. Uh, if you are gonna bring something to a desert island, I think there are very few games that still have new things to share after you play them for five years or something yeah. and in a way that is not about i finally unlocked the level 600 something or other dagger or whatever like it's really just um not just learning to play the game the way you learn to play trials but also learning the meta of the game the way that the game builds itself for you um like that is a skill that you build is understanding that and understanding the parameters of it and getting a sense or a feel for it. And a lot of these um, world record runs that you see in Spelunky, I think are, um, they can be really confusing to watch because you'll see somebody like essentially leap into the black market without any of the things that normally tell you where it is. And it's because yeah. they just kind of no. have intuited yeah. where it should be you know and like that is a very weird and cool 
thing. Like uh, the idea that the game is randomly generated, but obviously to sort of control that a little bit, there are parameters set mm-hmm. for certain things to spawn at certain times or not to conflict with other elements or objects of the game. And for players to uniquely find that out by paying attention to the world, your world of your game being so absorbing and so um, e- with each play teaching you new stuff, for players to be able to recognize, due to the way the, your game crafts itself every time, is incredible. Yeah, it's a, a whole other language. It's this language that takes like three years to learn or something, but now you can speak Spelunky. And <laughs> it lets you do all these unbelievable things in the playing of it. And, um, you know, that is, that's a pretty cool thing. Uh, the fact that it is... You know, Spelunky Classic um, came out in 2008. Cannonball came out in 2009. Yes. Um, that's not a huge coincidence. Like, the there's, a, you know, a couple of, um, you know, Spelunky and Captain Forever. And, um, you know, those are, those were very procedural, procedurally generated or randomly generated or whatever you want to call it. Um, roguelite, roguelike, whatever, like that, those games were looming so large in my mind when I was sitting down and playing with ideas of what Cannibal might be or could be or whatever. Um, and partly like playing those games and thinking about the parts, in what ways are they self-directed, in what ways uh, is the, you know, is the way that the games generate themselves for you reactive or kind of more set in stone uh, and those things being different and interesting in different ways you know reactive generation uh, cannibal is a reactively generated game so if you're the obstacles that you encounter are based on the player's speed um, and I think that's really interesting way of designing a game and um, also made this game capsule that did that even more like the uh, left for dead is another game that has a lot of reactive generation the game is paying attention to the scenarios and the status of the players and is trying to uh, introduce really interesting obstacles for them. Uh, the downside to those kinds of systems are sometimes they feel fickle, they feel like you can be, they can be taken advantage of, yeah. and there is a consistency and an interestingness to games that are unreactive in their randomness, Tetris and Spelunky and so on, yeah. in that you know the skill of the game is learning to cope with the kinds of randomness that you might encounter. Um, it could be extremely good one. It could be extremely difficult in one sense, or it could be extremely you know easy for yeah. one run. Whereas maybe kind of about all like Left 4 Dead, good players will progressively learn that there is a limitation to the randomness depending on at the speed because there's only so much mm. you as a game designer can put into a game yeah in terms of whereas and they do different they do different things i think yeah. like reactive when you're doing reactive generation using that to generate arcs and to sort of create plots in a, in some way. I yeah, think it's, almost. It's yeah. really well suited to that sort of thing. And just kind of generating things ahead of time is a little more, um, more. that's more like how Spelunky works and how Overland works actually. And the, you know, the, the flavor of that is this, um, uh, you know, maybe players feel a little bit more like they're up against some kind of uh, incomprehensible or implacable force 
you know, they're they're against something and they really do need to, they feel like they have to learn their way around it. The same way you have to learn, you know, oh, doing this kind of thing in Tetris is bad. Don't do that anymore. Uh, and so you get different things out of it, but like without, um, without games like Captain Forever and Spelunky Classic, sitting there and being playable and being concrete and being able to dig into them and to think about if I made this, would I, would I have done it differently? And if I had done it differently, what would the outcome look like? What sorts of, you know, um, downstream effects are there on the player's psychology and the things that they decide to do? So, I mean, I just, oh, like, um, I think above and beyond Spelunky being uh, a remarkable example of a kind of game that you can still find new things in after playing it regularly for five plus years. That's an insane kind <laughs> of arc to have on a single player game. That's unbelievable. And aside from just plain being fun, uh, and aside from whatever quality this is of Derek's work to make me feel like I could make something too, and that it's fun to make things. Uh, there's also this component of, I know that playing Derek's work did make me excited about making games and did change the way I was making games. And um, the work that I did based on or inspired by his work changed my life, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah. Oh, I, so I do, so do is... are we, are we thinking somewhere down the line, Derek is owed some kind of belt royalties somewhere. I mean, he's probably, probably. got enough money. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's more <laughs> but you go like, to a deserted I, island. It's fine. There's no Yeah. So there. like, like I think Spelunky is on this deserted island, partly because what a perfect game to have there, but also yeah. um, in some ways it's got, um, it's kind of a, a, a place of honor, similar to Final Fantasy Tactics. Like these are just games that have shaped the way that I think about games and what I value in games and what I think are interesting in games that I kind of like, I want them there to play and enjoy, but also um, kind of to put up on the wall and just be like, man, this is one of the ways that you do this thing that, is, <laughs> that sure is interesting. <laughs> Adam, I would be remiss to to not exploit that creativity you get out of playing Spelunky. So I'm kind of inclined to just give you a C compiler anyway and just like allow <laughs> you the eight games and also to just make whatever deserted island inspirations come to you through playing Spelunky and also being on a deserted island. But we'll think about that. Uh, speaking of games that make people want to create stuff, the next game we're going to talk about has been for maybe the past two months for me, exactly what you were talking about this game has made me open unity and game maker on a constant daily basis it, it was such i mean the reviews came out and everything was great and a lot of players were telling me you know this has been an amazing thing you need to play it and i knew it was going to be great and i wanted another game for my switch but i played this game in two days non-stop i absolutely cannot say how much i adored it enough and the fact that it's getting chosen for final games is amazing um but in the context of what we've been speaking about already i feel like it fits even more so i'm incredibly excited to talk about the next game on adam's list as well as listen to another fantastic soundtrack because the soundtrack to this game is wonderful so let's listen to some beautiful music from this next game from composer lena rain and let's of course Dive straight into it.
jumping in then to the next game on Adam's list. Uh, I feel like Adam's just like giving me his list for me to enjoy as well. This is so delightful. Um, but the next game is a game developed by Matt Makes Games, directed by, of course, Matt Thorson, responsible for Titlefall, another wonderful, incredible game. As someone who is a huge fan of Smash Brothers, that kind of four-player local co-op for me is so inspirational. It's such a wonderful game. But the most recent game he's made is a game that only released... Uh, Two or three months ago, I think back in late January, around the same time as Dragon Ball Fighters and Monster Hunter, but for me, just completely overtook my interest in both of them. It's a platformer game, but it's unlike any platformer I've really played before. It's the wonderful Celeste. Now, Adam, why are you taking Celeste with you? Uh, I mean, it's checking off the need to have some good music to listen to box pretty handily yes um, and that is important uh it also has a lot of these things that i love so much in infinifactory and trials and spelunky this sense of um how do you even get up there how do you even get to the next room this is impossible oh okay i get it and then coming back later and um realizing oh there's a actually there's an even easier way to do it there's a faster way uh and then coming back later and going like oh i've been doing this all wrong you're supposed to go through this room like this and then coming back later and going like oh no 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 this is completely i've completely <laughs> misunderstood what you're supposed to be doing here it has that loop which is just so wild for me um irresistible to me on some level um it's it's just absolutely huge. They're out of these these little puzzles. There's there must be like seven hundred or something of these little these yeah. little bite size little puzzles, um, which is just um, so generous. And I remember at one point I was watching um, after Celeste came out. I was watching a few of um, Matt's talks, and one of them was mm. like during I think I think it was about two years ago, and it was during towards what he called the last. 20%. Yeah. Of course, we know what the <laughs> yeah. last 20% in video games is. Uh, it yeah. took him two years to complete the last 20%. But at that point, they had like uh, 900 levels or something towards the end. Mm. They? Yeah. yeah. Uh, incredible it's, amount. It's a, it's a huge amount of quote-unquote content, but it's not just... You know, there's another game I won't mention that I think made a big deal out of the fact that it had 700 puzzles. But, you know, half the puzzles were just absolute filler it was the equivalent of like you know here's the next puzzle how many beans are in this jar oh just kidding the number's written on the bottom <laughs> and you have to do like 50 of those to get to the next thing and every single little bit of celeste's 600 700 levels is so thoughtful and so careful and so meticulous and always has five little weird alternate things kind of snuck into it um again out of very simple controls um in terms of you know the kind of technical output and it functions very differently from trials in that there's no and from spelunky it's not a randomly generated game no it is very set content and it doesn't have a trolley quap like controls twist to it the controls are very direct it's like you know you're mario but even better Imagine if Mario was as precise as you could ever want him to be and could double jump right from the get-go and could stick to walls. You don't even have to wall jump. You can just hang from the wall. Like It's so generous in that, and it still has this depth of discovery and this depth of expression and, and questioning all of your assumptions about how best to move through these spaces. And 
um, it's just an absolute joy. And, and part of it I know too is that it is leaning on the other sticky problem set that I get obsessed with, which is um, uh, bouldering and rock climbing, um, which was one of the big inspirations. For, if you ever have been bouldering semi-regularly and you play Celeste, within like 60 seconds, you're just like, oh my God, it's a game about rock climbing. And it's not the fact that the theme is you're climbing a mountain. It's you start to realize that all the same parts of your brain that are going wild while you're trying to figure out a rock climbing problem, yeah. all those same parts of your brain are highlighting up while you're playing this video game, which <laughs> never, ever happens. And I think one of one of Matt's level design talks, I think, has a great example of what that is, which is one of the one of the cool things that happens in your brain when you're rock climbing or bouldering is um, the way to solve a bouldering problem in the rock climbing community is called beta. So beta is the put your foot here, then put your hand here and then shift your weight and then you can reach the next spot. But don't take too long because then you're going to fall off the wall. Yeah. Uh, and we would, yeah, we would call that beta and, uh, your, uh, the way that you, uh, get better at rock climbing is through an, uh, usually an evolving understanding of the beta of a route combined with, uh, you know, increases in skill and personal skill, strength, stamina, balance, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah. there's this mix of things. You're getting better at the thing itself, but also the parts of your brain that are engaged in the problem solving are f getting better at thinking up ways to get up a thing. Uh, and they go hand in hand. You realize in rock climbing, uh, oh, if I put my leg over here, it seems like I'm gonna fall off the wall, but actually it makes me feel like I'm more on the wall. That's weird. Uh, and Celeste has so much of this in it, even though it's not, I think if you were trying to make an indie game about rock climbing, you would end up with something like GURP or yes. something like, you know, uh, it's very, you're a, you're a character and you have hands and feet and they have to go on the holds and you're trying to simulate, um, somehow recreate the feeling of rock climbing that way. And Celeste has gotten rid of it. You're a little, you're a little square. All you are is a little square, uh, and, but the the invisible stamina meter, the um, the sense that uh, the way the stamina meter like refills refills instantly as soon as you get your feet on solid ground again. Um, these things are all. It's such a nice abstraction. It's such an elegant compression of a lot of the mentality of rock climbing and bouldering all sort of stuffed into this very cute little pixelated thing that could very easily have been a Super Nintendo game for the most part. You know, yeah. there's very little in the way of bespoke technology or revolutionary physics or any of those things that are pushing this game forward outside of you know the amount of attention the attention to detail in the audio would not have been possible on an older setup but yeah um you know the level design and the sensibilities it's a lot like to me it's a lot like cannonball in the way that like you don't need um you don't really need anything special to um, make this place it's more about recreating a, a pretty specific kind of feeling mentally and physically while you play within these um, really ancient in our industry constraints in terms of of technology and so I, I admire it for all those things but mostly it just scratches this itch like assuming I'm on a desert island or I'm on Isle Delfino where there is no climbing wall 
Uh, you know, you need a something... flood to get to most places usually, but you're not going to have yeah. that. So right, exactly. Uh, and so you know, in between learning to scale the sides of the buildings or something, you know, I, I definitely I need something that can scratch that itch in my brain. And this is the only video game to me that feels like that. Even the way that the 700 puzzles are broken up into these discrete little four or five move sequences. And there's one move of the four or five moves that's the hardest move. And in climbing, we would call that the crux, right? Uh, that there are really safe, really risky places yeah. to uh, go through. And then there are little safe places along the sequence. And the safe place is maps to climbing as like a you call it like a jug or a bomber hold it's a place where you you don't have to worry about hitting it just right or else you fall off you know you're safe there like um this hobby is thrilling and exciting and borderline addictive for a lot of people because of all these components and celeste has managed to capture and encapsulate all a lot of the mental uh, parts of this hobby and put it in this whole other thing, which is remarkable to me. That's an incredible thing to accomplish. And also, like, I love that it has such a huge audience of people who don't climb. Yeah, and because that, I was going to say, wild. I have never, I've done bouldering once, I think. And I, I have friends who do it. And I actually, uh, quite recently, when I think about it now, a lot of my friends have really gotten into it. And I've always wondered what the appeal was. I work out and I play sports and stuff like that. So I get the sense that there, there is something to it that I could definitely get into. It is exercise. You know? Yes, exactly. Um, um, but and... it's kind of like a, like a, like a mental sol problem-solving exercise, which is very mm -hmm. different to, obviously, all other exercises, apart from when you get to certain levels yeah. of sport performance. Well, and it's this mix. You know, like the thing when I was doing... I used to do a lot of outdoor rock climbing, and I was playing... That's when I was playing, um, sort of hobby-playing Street Fighter Four, maybe 30 minutes a day or something like that. So I was... Um, doing a lot of, um, you know, I was rock climbing a few times a week and playing a little bit of Street Fighter every day. And there's something about that mix. There's something about this, you know, Celeste as a single player, like, again, like trying to put this, frame this as like, what's a single player game that could really scratch these itches that normally I can only, like, I only really address through these physical hobbies that I wouldn't have access to or these multiplayer games I wouldn't really have access to. And... Um, Celeste really actually captures so much of this stuff, the balance of physical and mental development and changes in what you can do physically, like, like just learning to control the character in Celeste differently and to achieve different yeah. things with her very basic controls changes the options that you have on the table for solving the problems. And the, those are things that you carry back. So where in something like uh, Infinifactor, like in a Zactronics game, for example, a lot of the, um, it's purely mental, basically, you know, beyond figuring out how to place blocks. Uh, the, every, every advance, every, all the ways in which you move forward and question the things that you did previously are purely mental. Uh, and I think same if you're playing mini Metro with the ability to pause the game, it's essentially the same. Your your mental capacity for problem solving is the only really the only factor in growing the way that you play the game and the way that you solve problems. And Celeste 
is, I think, um, for me, is relatively unique among uh, single-player games outside of maybe... Yeah, there's there's other stuff. There's Bayonetta's and another game that uh, the game I'm going to say talk about next has a lot of this in a different way. But this um, this tandem growth, this teeter totter growth of my physical capabilities have changed and become either uh, deeper or more broad. And in doing so, the number of solutions that I have access to has changed. And now the number of solutions I have access to has changed. I have a different understanding and I see different sore points or weak spots or flaws in the way that I'm moving forward. And maybe those can be addressed by changes in the way that I play physically and vice versa. And you get this back and forth kind of um, conversation between your mind and your body. And that's definitely one of the things that I uh, that I love about sports, that I loved about basketball, that I love about running, that I love about rock climbing. And uh, it doesn't come out in games very that often. often. And, and uh, when the... it does, it frequently is in a game that is so inaccessible. The next game I'm going to talk about is one of the least accessible games that I've ever played. <laughs> and Celeste is just like, no, nah, man, it's like Mario. It's like Mario, except that it has this huge... Uh, this huge expressive range and it's the, very... the fact that it's all designed, it's not an accident. It's not like, yeah. well, the level felt good like this, so I left it like that. Like like every single little bouldering problem in that game is so thoughtful and so careful. And uh, that's the thing is like, though I think something you hit on that hits Celeste for me super hard, which is as someone who's played sports their whole life in tandem with video games, there is always this serious disconnect between how video games can represent sort of the mm. the reenactment of like physical touch or the, the physical responsiveness of you as a human being. We are incredibly reactionary creatures. We can respond so fast compared to many other creatures on the planet and we can think, you know, multiple calculations of something at once. And when you play sports that really shows out that comes out it's like a weird other level of thinking a lot of the stereotype is that sports people aren't the brightest people in the world but their brain works in a weird reactionary level where they take problems that we can't process at speeds that they do but there is a disconnect mm. usually in video games where you'll have the idea but the game won't correspond to how you feel whereas in celeste the game feel is like one-to-one. -one. Whatever you do with your hands, which is what your brain is telling you, reacts into the game immediately. And that mm. is so rare. And the way Celeste controls and the way you can control the character is so one-to-one -one and better than almost 90% of the games I've played, especially yeah, platformer games. It's, it's really remarkable in the way it controls, I think, because there are so many games where I otherwise get these... Find these satisfactions. Yes. Um, your Bayonettas, your Trials, your Rocket Leagues, your Street Fighters. Like, these are all games that are um, the process of learning to control it physically is, uh, is just about being able to use the buttons and have what you wanted to happen happen, happen at all. At all. And, and without, learning to without cross that like gap friction. Is the thing. And without yeah. friction, so many video games just have the friction between the player and what corresponds on the screen, whether it's yeah. some sort of limitation to being able to turn your character or react in a yeah. certain way. But Celeste I mean, like reacts. high level, yeah, there's no, they don't, there's no artificial 
friction in there to extend the learning process. It's yes. just like, no, here, go for yeah. it. Like go if you it, jump and like all of a sudden something you didn't see, but you react to, like you see a strawberry, that double jump and the fact that you can immediately do it, you're like, oh, like you, your brain yeah. reacts and the game immediately responds to your brain's reaction to then yeah. double jump back, grab a wall, fall down, jump out. And you're like, before you even actually have processed what you've just done, you're like, my brain thought of it, I did it, the game responded, and now I'm here yeah. five seconds later, and I, everything's a blur. <laughs> well, it, it's because it has, I think it has this, The they've, they've come up with a control set and have tuned it to such a degree that it has a level of improvisation. Yes. It has a capacity for improvisation that yes. I think is pretty rare outside of physical activities. Like, that's always, that's the thrill, uh, you know, one of the, one of the, exciting things that you can do in rock climbing is try to climb something you've never climbed before and all you can do is really look at it from below and make some educated guesses about how you might go up it and um, to the point where uh, there's a special word for solving a rock climbing problem on the first try it's called flashing right and ah. that sense of playing through celeste and f jumping into a room and being able to read the room well enough as well as have the kind of controls that allow you to improvise Rise. in little ways as you yep. move through and like finishing a celestium on the first try i like the first time that i did it on a puzzle that to me at the time felt difficult and i was like oh i'll give it a shot and then like just found myself kind of improving through the space and kind of coming out the other side and not even dying in the room uh and feeling like um you know, the first word that came to mind, I was like, holy shit, I flashed the whole room. Uh, <laughs> and because it was the same thrill, I was like, oh, I have, I have the, I, I'm able to react. I'm able to shift my weight. I was able to find a surface to push off of, Yeah. you know, uh, the same way that like, um, you know, in basketball, all the variables are constantly changing and you would see, you'd start to learn to see an opening of like, oh, if I were to move here, then I would have mm. all these opportunities. And that's an improvisational decision. That's not a, a practiced decision. Yes. And I think it's so, it's so cool and satisfying and fun and insightful to play a game that is not a game that is not reactive and that does not have reactive level design, a game that is this clockwork set in stone level design, and then to give you these wildly improvisational controls and to allow you to move through the space in a really expressive way is <laughs> so just, uh, it's so great. It's so great. It's like <laughs> it's weird. This so is like the great. newest game that's on my list. And I'm really curious if I will, you know, will I feel the same way about it in a year or something like that? But, um, because uh, it's, it's, it is still very fresh for me, but I feel like yeah. these these things that I'm interested in it are not, these are not fresh ideas for me. Like these are things that I've wanted from a video game forever. And every once in a while you get a little bit of it from a Mario game. Yeah, sometimes like they that. present themselves in some forms um, in games. That, yeah, uh, like Mario. But it would be a 3D game. You know, all the Marios are 3D now and you have to deal with that and deal with like, oh, I'm actually, those three, like Super Mario is frequently a shadow watching game now. You know, like, is my shadow over the block as I'm moving through the thing or whatever? What uh, is my, and, um, you know, periphery of distance? What is the yeah. depth perception I have uh, on this? Less and, perfection improvisation and more guesswork. Sometimes yeah. you get on a good run and you can improvise. Like, you'll be like, dun, dun, dun. Oh, actually, don't want to do that. Yeah. Change it. Dun. Yep. But yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It's, it comes around rare for a man. Yeah. 
And Celeste is just, it's that and only that from the zeroth minute of the game. And it has it forever. Yeah. It's hundreds and hundreds of that. And that's just astonishing. That's just an astonishing game to play to me. Yeah. Seriously, um, if you have a Switch and you haven't played Celeste yet, or you, you know, you have a PC or whatever, it's so good on in general at all. But if you have a Switch, you need another game, please... Go ahead and please, it's highly recommended. Uh, but speaking of <laughs> interesting design uh, and another Final Games first. God, this list is brilliant. Thank you, Adam. <laughs> I'm My very pleasure. excited today. I'm very excited. People will be like, what is going on with Liam today? I'm very excited. This list is fantastic. <laughs> um, a friend of mine was a producer on this game as well. He's since left the games industry, actually. But hmm. he. this is one of the games he was... Uh, in Tide, resp- uh, responsible for working in tandem with uh, Shinji Mikami, one of uh, horror's greatest directors. Who would have mm. thought he would make one of the best third-person action shooters of all time? Um, yeah. But let's let's listen to some twice. music twice, twice. <sighs> let's listen to some music from this next game, and let's of course just dive straight into the second-to-last game on Adam's list. Jumping into the next game now, and another Japanese developer who, alongside Intelligent Systems, that I admire greatly because their their back catalogue of action games is just remarkable. We've had some misses, the Legend of Korra game and the uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle games, the, the sort of smaller scale ones, uh, they're afterthoughts, I think, at the studio to make money. You know, the video games industry is a tough industry, uh, as everyone will know. But when they pump out a game, they certainly pump out a game of Platinum Games. And this game is one of them. Although not as popular as you think. You know, you might be thinking we're talking about Bayonetta. We're not. We're not talking about Which Bayonetta. Which could, could easily have been on this list. Yes. What a remarkable, marvelous, weird, problematic, <laughs> genius thing that game is. We're also not talking about the wonderful 101, which is also a third-person action game. Um, we're talking about their sort of other rare but wonderfully admired third-person shooter that was directed by Shinji Mikami, responsible, of course, for Resident Evil 4 and many other great games like The Evil Within and Evil Within 2. Um, This game released back in 2010, eight years ago. Wow, I'm getting old. I can't believe it. (laughs) Eight years ago since I was enjoying this. It recently released on uh, PC last year, finally. Mm. We're seeing a lot more Japanese games on PC these days, which is great. You control Sam Gideon, who is in the most entangled, most nonsensical plot 
of all time on a wonderful like Halo-esque ring in space where you slide around on your bum shooting just an unholy amount of giant robots. It's just the wonderful Vanquish. Adam, thank you for choosing Vanquish. Adam, oh, but my, why is it that my you're pleasure. taking... I like how I pretended for a while that it wasn't going to be on my list. Like, <laughs> I was just like, mm, I'm not sure if I should include this. Like, it's a ludicrous stance. Uh, it's, I mean, I uh, Shinji Mikami is a designer and industry mentor who I look up to a lot. Um, this is a guy who brought up Hideki Kamiya. Yes. Uh, uh, he brought up the Phoenix Wright designer while he was at Capcom. Uh, he's just had a huge, huge influence on the industry as a producer and as a sort of senior industry person. He, um, I mean, basically invented survival horror, and then he went on to basically invent every modern first like third person over the shoulder game i you, mean you a, like, like resident evil 4 completely changed yeah everything you like is a war you like you like uncharted uncharted lara croft tomb raider like any of those games that you like you owe it to shinji Mikami. <laughs> yeah yeah just hugely influential like like every uh the whole just what a what a huge design presence and all in, in addition to being this brilliant producer to have um helped you know mentor these other designers who in their own work have been hugely influential in different ways like what an incredible dude and uh he went on this kick after resident evil 4 of really changing up all of the ingredients so where you know, I think the um, the Western response to Resident Evil 4 was like, oh, tight, let's take everything here. And the only thing will change is that instead of shooting zombies, you will shoot people. You will murder people. <laughs> um, and Or or maybe aliens or something. But Robots we're add, sometimes, giant tanks. More blood, more chainsaws, more machine guns, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's, that's really what's special here. And... Mikami pretty much dropped everything and went off and just explored what else you could do with all of this stuff that was in Resident Evil 4. And he made a bunch of weird games. He made PE number five. He made God Hand. Um, he spun off Clover as this sort of yep. Capcom subsidiary with Hideki Kamiya um, before they both went off and um, started working on Platinum stuff. Platinum, who also was behind Near Automata, which probably a lot of people played this year. Yep. Um, so, like. This is a studio that, you know, even from the genesis of Capcom, the games like Beautiful Joe, DMC, mm -hmm. like these games that spun into Clover being like God Hand and Okami and Okami, just yeah. being responsible for some of the biggest Japanese games in the past 10 years. Yeah, Mikami is just this force kind of like pushing this stuff forward and for me, the end of his experimentation process post Resident Evil 4 and this is me projecting a bunch of crap that I'm sure he would disagree with, but I feel like after Resident Evil 4 there's all this experimentation which of which like the high point of the experiments is certainly God Hand, um, which is um, uh as far as I can tell, unfinished. 
um, <laughs> and is still like one of the most fun action games I've ever played in my entire life. Um, like just that's just styling. That's just like should like have the game not even be done and have everybody still gasping for breath trying to keep up. Like take it easy, man. So. Um, but eventually he gets to a place where he makes Vanquish, which on the surface is very Gears of War, you know, over the shoulder camera, cover shooter, um, big dumb sci-fi story, a uh, bunch of squad mate based mechanics. Um, and literally, uh, if you go back two hours ago when we spoke about Final Fantasy Tactics and the idea of doing something from a different culture but in a japanese way yeah. vanquish is the gears of war of japan and very much it, so but and it is the J- japanese version it, it and it's wild to me because like gears of war comes explicitly publicly out of resident evil 4 <laughs> like they played like cliff played uh resident evil 4 and was like this is our next game is i'm just <laughs> going to remake resident evil 4 as best i can um and yeah you come back to vanquish a few years later and uh i think the industry i think one of the reasons that it got rocky reception is the industry had moved under its feet a little bit i think games like gears of war and uncharted were kind of like resetting expectations that we had, had a lot yeah and, and vanquish like was it's a game that really has a different plan at its core, like at its core, Vanquish plays so much more like these other games that I've been talking about. It plays more like Celeste or Trials than it does like a loosey-goosey narrative thing where your actions don't matter. Like Vanquish is intensely systemic. It's It gives you a tremendous amount of feedback. It uh, is a uh, toy where it has the same loop of playing through a space, finishing it, feeling like, yeah, I did it. I beat the robots and realizing that was so clumsy. That was so f- foolish. I need to go back. I need to rethink everything. Let me try again. Approached Let me... all of these obstacles. Yeah. Um, to a point where even trials, like you can opt out of the checkpoint system entirely and work on learning to sort of gun dance through an entire chapter in one move. Like I still like, I don't. I never care about uh, like trophies or chivos, right? But like, I have this Vanquish PS3 achievement for finishing the game on hard without dying, uh, which is not super easy to do. But it's like zero point one percent of people have this trophy or whatever, <laughs> and you uh, you get it just by opting out of checkpoints and playing the game on a harder level of difficulty. And it just has so much to give that way. But I think our expectations expectations at launch, which were not addressed by Sega as a publisher and marketing partner at all were that, oh, this is like a story-based thing. And Vanquish itself presents itself that way. It, yeah. like, it, it comes in and it's like, yes, this is a story-based science fiction cover shooter, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's the opposite of all of these things. The story doesn't matter at all. When you the, get into um, it, it's like, it's less Gears of War cutscenes and it's more like Earth Defense Force, wacky yeah, Japanese cutscenes. You're not every stereotype to, under the yeah. sun. You're not supposed yeah, to and, care. And you're not supposed to be behind cover. If you're behind cover, you're getting a lower score because you're doing the level more slowly. Uh, and y- you start to, if you give it time, you start to realize that there is, it has this um, superficial Gears of War AAA sensibility on the top and that underneath, actually, it is this... Um, 
just remarkable arcade game. Just uh, 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 and remarkable in all the ways that you would want. I mean, I think in some ways similar to Advance Wars, it has it's super highly functional on a lot of levels where like the story's dumb and maybe the character designs are pretty boring or something like that. Um, the places where it does excel, um, the moment to moment actual controlling of this game and this like this intuition for what both feels good and looks cool and is fun to do and plays into the larger strategies of the levels like where you start to realize one of my favorite things in it is it has basically uh, it's a it's a, a little bit like an over the shoulder halo in terms of what kind of weapons you have access to and stuff like that. But it has these two you have these two super moves. You have these two abilities. One of them is that you can boost on the ground. Uh, you can do like butt slide uh, <laughs> around the level, and you can the but best. you can also do bullet time. And you can mix and match these things. You can be butt sliding and pop into bullet time and pop out, or be in bullet time and pop into the butt slide, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and it gives you these things, and they feel very gimmicky at first. You know, it feels like it's like, oh, everybody does bullet time now, and yeah, oh, Bayonetta, got... like we've already played that. Yeah. You know, oh, no, oh, they have speed boost. That's nice. Gears of War has a run button too. Who cares? Uh, and it has recharging health, just like you would expect from a game like this, where they're, well, we don't want to do health numbers because Doom had that and Doom's dumb. Oh, oh, we found out Doom's actually amazing last year, didn't we? Um, but uh, <laughs> it, like, it took all these things, but the thing that Vanquish does, it takes all these gimmicks that everybody else was doing and hadn't really thought through, and it puts them all together and unifies them, and suddenly they're not gimmicks anymore they're all good and one of the th one of the concrete things that they did to do this is everything runs off the same health bar so you have recharging health uh but using the bullet time or the butt boost uh both consume your recharging health uh and these things are all intertwined as a system and so now it's not just that one decision suddenly it's not just a bunch of gimmicks it's not just a bunch of stuff they took from other games and stuck together because we can put them on bullet points on the back of the box now this is a spatio-temporal resource system that you can use to move through the level so if you're confident that you're not going to take damage then you know that you can uh, use the butt boost to get up through here, vault over this thing, and use the remaining meter that's left from the distance of the boost you did to temporarily uh, sort of slide into bullet time and take out these three guys and move on to the next section without quite using up the meter. Because if you use up the meter, it goes into this sort of overcharge where it's got a really slow reload. Yeah, it takes, it's like, like you've overheated basically. Time yeah. To reload. yeah. They, it's almost in like, and it, I love it too because it's almost like they looked at Gears of War with the little reload mini game thing, which feels so good in Gears of War. And we're like, now nah, you know, it's actually more interesting if it is a result of earlier decisions whether or not you can reload right away or not. Yes, it's a, it's uh, it's up to you know, uh, you treat this as a budget, and as long as you use always use ninety nine percent of your budget and never a hundred percent of your budget, then it recharges almost instantly and you can roll out again into the next maneuver, <laughs> right? Like it's so, oh, it's so effing smart. 
And then the thing they did on top of that, they're like, that's not enough. <laughs> if you build it this way, that's really interesting most of the time. But if you always are supposed to use 99% and not 100%, then it's not a choice anymore. You're not really making a choice as a player. And so what if sometimes you do want to use 100% of your meter? Um, and so what they put in are these weird, I don't remember what they call them, finishing moves or something, but you have this attack that you can do that will always use whatever's left of your meter. And it does usually either a very weird specific ability that you normally can't do otherwise, or it will do more damage than any normal weapon in the game can do, even a sniper rifle or rocket launcher, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and uh, the way that plays out, because it always uses whatever's left of your meter and always does a tremendous amount of damage, is this now is the like last beat in your combat song that you play in a specific area. So you kind of come in and there's this buildup of going like, I'm burning 90% of my meter on boosts and bullet times on this side of the arena, and then I'm gonna give it a quarter of a second to recharge, which I'm gonna do during a roll, and I'm also going to reload my guns in the middle of the roll and bury my reload times in there. Now the meter's recharged, I'm doing a 90% burn over to here. I'm gonna run that loop about three times. There's gonna be one bad guy left who's got a ton of HP and I'm gonna use what's left of the ammo and meter that I have to get around behind him, empty two shots in, and then I'm gonna blow the special move and use up the last 2% of my meter to do a thousand damage to this dude, obliterate him and move on to the next level with you know minimum amount of time wasted, maximizing all of these resources on the way, all in this weird, very these arenas that you do this in are huge like your speed boost you go it's not like a, a you run twice as fast now it's like you go 10 times yeah, as fast they have made the You're... levels huge to not not only just allow you to you know orientate space and allow you to sort of almost do a dance like you said like a gun dance yeah. it gives you the space to do it but you are butt sliding all over the place and if you've not seen video clips of vanquish you move at speed you it's, cover and it feels weird like so your first good. read and like it's i think it must have been there's so many hard decisions to make because like every one of these decisions that feeds back and informs this like singular gameplay experience every single one of these things is really easy to deride on its own you can say like oh it's like a they took that thing from max Payne, or like oh they took a turbo button or like look look at this level there's not even like stuff in it it's just a big open thing it's stupid and like oh you're just like a stupid robot guy with stupid guns like and like all these things are true and the thing is like oh oh it's a recharging health bar those are stupid now we decided those are you yeah know, 20, every every 15. game has one of those yeah and uh but like the when you combine all these things and you invented a bunch of this stuff because you're Shinji Mikami and you've been thinking <laughs> you've been thinking about how it really works for like a long time for like yeah. 5 years or something when you you were prototyping the original versions of these before anyone else yeah. you've had a lot of fucking time to And think you're thinking about, about this like over the shoulder camera and like actually that's that's a little bit boring if you just walk everywhere 
and uh you know you've yeah you've like you've taken all these pieces and you've thought about them for a long time and you put them all together and it's like it's like seeing a bunch of pieces laying out on the table that look like they're from different cars or something or from different puzzles and then you put them together and you realize that if you put them together just so it forms this perfect cube and you didn't even know that was what, like like who how how are you supposed to know that like the four dumbest gimmicks from western shooters in the last 10 years or something you could take all of them you could put all the garbage in the same game bad level design bad health bars bad bullet time bad like oh well we made the levels too big so we need to give you a way to move across them quickly i guess i don't know like like who could have guessed that you could take all of our trash that was making all of our games worse and put it all into one game and have the thing that came out of it be like genuinely remarkable and mm-hmm. to give you this um again and, and it's got but it, what that produces is this environment in which you are doing this same loop that i get hooked on so much which is thinking that you understand how the game works and then realizing oh no 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 i've completely misunderstood it's actually about this you know and the first leap from that is like oh it's like a cover shooter no, it isn't. I'm not supposed to be behind cover. That's weird and interesting. Uh, cover is actually mostly there to jump off of to yeah. shoot people in the face point blank. That's it's a totally different thing. Now it's like a springboard. It's yes. not, these aren't. This is an arena full of cover. This is an arena full of springboards. I was thinking about this completely wrong, and then realizing like, oh. All of these weapons have been like painstakingly designed such that every three weapon loadout you use has a specific set of strengths and weaknesses. And this weapon, which seems not very useful, actually is extremely useful in this specific circumstance. And so now I'm not just thinking about how I'm going to go back and play through Celeste style. What's the best routing through this level? I'm also thinking about uh, this second layer of resource management. Do I need to be carrying stuff that I found in the previous arena into this arena because it will allow me to uh, short circuit this, you know, thing uh, or or skip this piece of it or take these guys out before they even appear or, um, you know, I've been uh, something that um, New Doom, uh, Doom 2016 does a great job of in their little arenas is like... um, Oh, crap, here comes a really strong guy. Oh, here's a rocket launcher. All right, I kill them with the rockets. There's a second strong guy, but I'm out of rockets. <laughs> and, like, just that little puzzle of, like, oh, I got to save these for later. Yes. Um, you know, Vanquish has this huge element of that in that, unlike most games, you don't carry 12 weapons with you at all times. You can only carry three, and you find them laying around levels in these little arcade stations. It makes no sense. You're, like, <laughs> just running around outside, and they're like, here's a gun kiosk or whatever uh, that's color-coded to the type of weapon you have. Like, it's all, it's all so stupid. But the outcome, the output of these systems is that you are really deliberately making your own builds and trying them out in the next section and you realize that a chapter of vanquish is really not just about the routing but the kind of routing that you can do with different builds and the possibility space for the kind of routing options that are available to you depend entirely not just on the routing that you've already done and the resources that consumed but what resources you choose to collect and carry forward with you and it's just like 
And it's designed, as far as I can tell, with almost exactly the same degree of care that something like Celeste is designed with, but on these, like, operating, uh, it's like playing two Celestes at once or something. Yes. It's like spatial Celeste and some new resource-based version of Celeste, and you have to play <laughs> both at the same time, and they have a conversation with each other. The choices that you make in one of those games affects the other game, and it's all happening in real time, and it's just, like, extremely overwhelming. Like, as a designer, it is, um, there's a point for me where after playing it for long enough and figuring enough out about how it was built and why it was built and how it actually works, where I was just like, I need to go lie down for a little bit. <laughs> I, I can't This comprehend. is just a lot to handle. Yeah, it's... And and obviously because there's a podcast no one saw, I was just furiously nodding at Adam <laughs> the whole time through it, thinking about playing through Vanquish. And there is something to be said about the obviously, of course, the way we design things in the West and the way we design things in Japan and how games are designed in Japan. And you know, we highlight Shinji Mikami incredibly because the in Japan it usually is one creative driving force. Behind everything. Mm. Everyone else is a tool to a means to finish the game. A programmer, an artist, a designer, they have some hand in it. But there is a figurehead or a, 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 you know, a creative force. Whereas, you know, in the West, we kind of don't like to be that egotistical, take control for a creative. And Shinji Mikami, the way him being the daddy of that genre almost, the, the third person... You gotta remember, by the time Resident Evil 4 came out, 3D space games were like seven years old. Like Vanquish yeah. is now like eight years behind us. Whereas by the time Shinji Mikami made Resident Evil 4, 3D space, 3D games that take place in a 3D space were literally only like seven or eight years old at that point as well. So yeah. for him to be prototyping and making and thinking about this stuff way beyond anyone, to then almost it's like him. It's his own iterations, like he's reiterating on himself. He he takes what mm. everyone else has been doing, and he's like, ah, so the Gears of War guys, they took what I was doing, and they're doing this, and then, take, and then he's like, but but how would I do it? And he yeah. and the, this this system. Well, I'm, I'm suspicious that like part of how he does this stuff is that maybe he actually works. Just I'm suspicious that he works a little differently than. Uh, I think some people might imagine yeah. a traditional Japanese director works in that I like I've actually read interviews with him expressing a lot of um, sort of disappointment or frustration in the fact that he is still the main working director on mm. the Evil Within series, for example, because he feels like... Well, he, he passed has... it on to JJ. He passed it on to John mm. Jonas for the second one, but it was very much because John lives here in Japan and oh, yeah, I've met him yeah. a few times and he is, he's mentioned that his and Shinji's desk are like right next to each other. So although the directorial is on John, mm. the there is always the I need to ask daddy's permission yeah, almost yeah. about it <laughs> kind uh, of thing. But he's actually like, he has like, um, I think there's more people than just John, I know that he had he had some people at Platinum, and then um, after he split off to form Tango or whatever, he has um, people that he um, he thinks are you know the next Hideki Kamiya's the yes. next 
Phoenix Wright directors. Like he's got all these all these junior, uh, quote unquote, junior talent who he's like, somebody give him a game. I've done this a few times before. I know what I'm looking at. Like I've got brilliant directors here. I yeah. probably a, like a 40 year old guy who's been doing this for as long as I have is I am going to have trouble keeping up. Yeah. Like I, my, my taste is going to be dated one way or another. I can you, can someone please just let the younger people here be in charge of the thing because yeah. we're going to make cooler stuff. And I, I either, either he didn't actually give this interview and I imagined it, or he did give this interview and I'm paraphrasing it weirdly, but this like, there is definitely, that. there are steps that Mikami has taken beyond a traditional Japanese developer. Obviously he was one of the first to sort of branch out from a big company being Capcom mm. before Kenji Inafune, before all that. Clover, then to Platinum, mm-hmm. to then making Tango, and then being like, hey, wonder if I partner with a Western publisher, what kind of stuff could yeah. I do? And that is definitely way beyond the sort of traditional Japanese yeah. way things have done. Yeah, but I just love this. I like, I actually, I took it really, really to heart. Like, it was like, for someone I look up to so much as a designer, as a producer, and rightly or wrongly, maybe it's like my own version of Shinji Mikami or whatever, right? Like, I don't want to put him personally on a pedestal in an unfair way, but to read from someone that I, uh, whose work I admire greatly, um, both his directorial and producer work, uh, and to hear them say, like, can, can someone please put the junior talent in charge of this stuff? It's stupid that I'm still making the same games. Um, again, paraphrasing here, that was like a game changer for how Finji operates, which you may have noticed that our company name sounds a little bit like another Shinji. game designer's name. Yeah. yeah. Uh, see, this is the funny thing. As I said, I, I can speak some Japanese, but I, I, Finji, I'm, I'm wondering, do I pronounce it the phonetic Japanese <laughs> way or do I pronounce it in the weird like English way that we have with F and yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, like re- like reading that, like I was just like, oh man, yeah, 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 yeah. Like I I want to I want to do that. I want mm. to. I actually really very much as for my career, I would like to shepherd younger designers into becoming yeah. lead designers and like keep that cycle going mm. and like do that because I think the output is going to be better in the long run. And that's the thing is um, for people like myself who have grown up playing these people's games and seeing it and to hear that, to be like, there is someone looking at the people who have played their games and under- who almost like I, I can be imagine being Mikami and being like a lot of people missed what I was trying to do with Vanquish obviously some of the review mm-hmm. scores and the criticism reflect that you're not trying to say some people will get it some people won't but there are different levels of how people will think especially people who aspire to be designers but he can see people who take what like Cliffy B for example take what mm-hmm. he saw in Resident Evil 4 and did what he did with Gears of War, Mikami's gonna be like, fuck yeah, look at that. Like there are people beyond me who are, have the ability to do that and it inspires people like me to be like, yes, I can. I will prove you right, Shinji. I am right behind yeah. you. We're gonna do it. Yeah. And it's, it yeah. is very inspiring and he is one of those, which is, mm-hmm. is great. And Yeah, I feel like I could put any of five of his games on my Desert Island list and they would all earn their spot there. But I like... I do like picking this one because I feel like it's, you know, even with its new modern kind of cult status or whatever, I still feel like it's kind of 
uh, it's still underappreciated for its sense of rhythm, for, um, you know, for all these things that we've been talking about yeah. where, you know, something like Bayonetta gets really rightly celebrated for these things. And, you know, we just very recently are seeing Western games like Celeste that have like some of the same sensibilities in terms of, you know, real time kind of problem solving and sequencing and alt routing and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a good one to uh, stick on the list. And I just know also I could just play it. I could just play it over and over again. Over and over again. Just lo- yeah. without even just thinking forever. the designer nope. brain on. Just like, let's shoot some shit yeah. and slide across the it's floor. It's so satisfying. <laughs> it's so satisfying. Well, Adam, it's it's finally time to talk about the last one on the list. And I'm very intrigued considering everything we spoke about from a design point. This series is known for a specific type of design, but it very much conflicts, mm. I think, with the type of design that you have philosophically yeah. talked about and also praised, which is very interesting. So I'm wondering if this is more like nostalgia or if this is like some more of those reasons. And it is, of course, it's always lovely to end on a Zelda game. It always is mm. wonderful. Um, but it's not the Zelda game you're all thinking about because, you know, of course... It definitely could fit into the design talks we've been having today. Uh, but let's listen to I could, some... I could make most of this list out of Zelda games, probably, <laughs> and it would basically be fine. <laughs> but we are going to listen to some beautiful music. Of, you know, some of the best music in the world comes from Koji Kondo and the Zelda music team and Mario team. So let's listen to some music from the last game, and let's get ready to listen to Adam's final game. Jumping into the last game on Adam's list, and I can say just now how much of a pleasure it has been speaking and listening to Adam talk today about all these wonderful games, and I'm very sad to be sending him to Isle Delfino. One hand, I'm jealous that he gets to play Vanquish on Isle Delfino, and also because I don't get to listen to him, but... The final game that we're going to talk about is a game developed by Nintendo EAD and directed by the wonderful Eiji Aonuma, such a lovely chap, produced by the the powerhouses of, of course, Miyamoto-san and also Takeshi Tezuka. It was released for the GameCube in December of 2002 in Japan and then in May of 2003 in Europe and in North America. It is the action-adventure game, The Legend of Zelda The Wind Waker. Adam. Why is this the last game that's going with you? Quite rightly, a game about sailing to islands. 
why is this the one that you're actually taking with you to an island? Oh, so definitely thematically appropriate choice. I think this was a Very late much. ad. This was not on my list up until the like right when we jumped on here. Um, and you're and just like, oh shit! I, was... I gotta write it in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh crap! Uh, uh, partly it's i mean this is this is a huge musical choice for me yes um, there are um there are melodies in this game that for nostalgia and other reasons uh are i just think um just plain remarkable remarkable instrumentation choices everything in this game was as much as breath of the wild is a um a bold a set of game design choices and brilliant game design choices for a lot of reasons. Like I'm, people probably don't remember that Wind Waker was the controversy yes! of the time. Oh my like, god! This was that um, Ocarina of Time was the undisputed greatest game ever made, uh, and a lot of that reaction was to the idea that you were a a grown-up badass Link, and this was a badass game for grown-ups, and that <laughs> the evolution of the Zelda series from here on forward was going to be to track the age uh, and relative, apparently, immaturity of the kinds of people that had played Zelda growing up, and that Zelda would essentially follow the arc of Metal Gear Solid, I guess, and eventually Link would be 60 years old and have like a grizzled beard and one arm and um, and whatever else. And, uh, you know, the early um, Wind Waker stuff started coming out and it was like, well, actually, it's it's very cute. It's it is extremely cute game. And there was such an uproar. There was such a panic. There was such a. Uh, a notion that there needed to be a consumer revolt, there needed to be a boycott, there needed to be something like Nintendo is abandoning the people who made it what it is. And it's just all this, like, all the rhetoric that you can really easily recognize in, like, online gamer communities right now was, like, struggling to be heard uh, around Wind Waker's release, and it was infamously, like, delayed uh, uh, over and over and over, and it shipped in a state that the developers have since described as like relatively unfinished and yeah. there's this really awkward uh trough uh two-thirds of the way through the game where suddenly you're off on a macguffin quest that is really uh atypical of the rest of the kind of experience of playing the game and so i mean this is not it's not a thing without flaws but in terms of like trying to do something um remarkable with a beloved like uh the, like the degree to which this game i think is and was experimental within the limits of what it is i think uh you know taking uh taking ocarina of time which and people kind of like gave a flyer to Majora's Mask in a lot of ways because they were like, well, at least it's the same art style and yeah, it's pretty weird, but it gets really cool and it's, you know, more of, it's not really a sequel. So it yeah, really it's count, just like, this is, I mean, now we look at it, it's like a completely different game, but the fact that, you know, in a year they they did the Unity and they art flipped everything, the asset flipped everything and they just like, it's, all, it's almost just like more Zelda. This was like yeah. the sequel. This was the, this was, and it's this on the, next, the generation next generation of hardware and... 
Yeah, and you know, like, I think people's expectations were for something that was like Twilight Princess, but ten times as big or something like that. Um, and there was just this whole thing about it, and instead they made Wind Waker. Uh, and In true Nintendo fashion. Yeah, it's the... it's And the... Uh, similar to Final Fantasy Tactics, the way the music fits the places that they built is just genuinely remarkable. And the timelessness of the art direction, the, the consistency, and the way that the characters and the environments and all of these things were unified, and the way things were kind of gently blurred in the distance, and the way that they were able to make the water look and the way you felt when you found like the f black and white frozen castle for the first time and the character animation and the way their eyes worked and moved. so expressive and yeah and the particle effects which people are still trying to kind of recapture the look and feel <laughs> of and like breath of the wild references pretty heavily like those were new think like all these things happen at once it was so it was so overwhelming and i remember being like excited about it as a, a at the time aspiring 3d artist and somebody who was really into the emerging field of like non-photorealistic rendering or npr like in computer science npr was like an emerging weird way of doing it. like cell shading was kind of a newish idea like yeah. it was beautiful joe was around the same time but is very very different and the idea that someone made um oh bungie had made a game that was kind of cell shaded a little bit oni um yeah um and so there's a few things floating around out there but that somebody had taken this emerging field of technology which of course it was nintendo that figured out how to do this right? they were like oh we can take cell shading and we can do a couple things with it we can use geometry this way and we can use flat sprites we can use all these weird tricks from the n64 and all this new stuff and we can kind of smash this stuff all together and we can have this huge unbelievable departure in art direction that is you know pulling from anime from the 60s or something like that and making this whole new place and making this 15 year old or 20 year old franchise feel completely new uh yeah. somehow um but not in the way breath of the wild does like the gameplay the structure like so much of the way it was built stayed the same and they did all this stuff with sound and music and animation where you would be uh, if you're sneaking around in a castle and you're little teeny tiny and the creatures that inhabited the castle were huge and dangerous and you're sneaking through there for the first time and the 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 dungeon music sounded like zelda one but all the guys stomping around in the castle their animations were like synced up to the music and you didn't even realize it at first you didn't realize that the action and the music were scored together the way they would be in a cartoon and um just what a again like just what a game and what a game that i would be so happy to play through 10 more times just to be in those places and just to witness like this is another game that I, I just take so much joy in it having been made 
like, through everything that it faced and the experimentation behind it. And I, I remember I was reading an interview today with, um, I can't remember his name. I think it's Tatsuya San. He's like the general manager for Nintendo. And they were talking about how they hire people. And it was sort of a, you know, in Japan, we have this process where every April university students, they will apply for jobs. And then almost every company mm. will only hire people from April, which is weird because, you know, in the rest of the world, we sort of hire people all year round. It's kind yeah. of weird. Whereas in Japan, you know, they hire people based on like the, their focus, whether it's like short term focus and being able to make lots of things. But the, the mm. variety of which you wish or if you have like a single focus where your your focus is to make a movie and it takes you three years to make the movie but your your single focus has stayed consistent throughout nintendo mm. looks for like the different varieties of that and he goes on to say like it's not surprising that everyone thinks we're taking risks but to us we're just trying to make new things and like it doesn't surprise me through that kind of attitude that they're like, hey, our, our second major franchise is the Zelda series. But you know what? We're kind of bored with that. Like, let's just let make something. And there was one artist one day who obviously made, like, this mock-up. And someone was like, that looks pretty cool. Let's see what kind yeah. of, like, prototype demos we can make with that. Just, well, like, even, even for this company who's done this so many times, like, the... I don't... I think this level of departure... Uh, this level of reinvention is is super rare for them. Yeah, and they're they're one of the studios that I look up to the most in terms of how to do this and why you would do it and what you get out of it. Uh, they never really do this. I mean, Mario sixty four would have been would be the big shift. You know, yeah. that would be the big the other big sea change for them. Uh, and Ocarina of Time to some degree, but to after that, like after that huge N64 leap and all of the pros and cons about doing that, to then do another huge reboot like that, like to me it's it's uh, very different from Breath of the Wild, but only, maybe just because like uh, the the ways Breath of the Wild innovates are maybe a little less superficial. You know, you can recognize a lot of the art decisions from Skyward Sword and Wind Waker and Twilight Princess. Like there's a there's a a, an, a, a cumulative sort of expression of past Zelda things in there. And yes. the, the places where they've innovated are more systemic and more about world design and stuff like that. And they're they're remarkable accomplishments. And I think, um, but I think in some ways they're also more, um, they're more in tune with audience expectations or they've gotten to a place where audience expectations and what they wanted to do as designers are very in tune. And again, like, I don't think, I don't, I am really curious if people remember how out of tune Wind Waker felt at the time. Like how, where, you know, I think, when people started talking about Breath of the Wild, and it was like, yeah, it's going to be like Zelda, but kind of open world. Um, there was a lot of discussion and debate around that. But I, I, I feel like the general response was like, oh, yeah, finally, Zelda Skyrim. Yes. <laughs> um, and, you know, it ended up being more and less than that in different ways. Um, but I feel like the expectations were like close, where for Wind Waker, it was just like, you're doing what? 
you're doing what? How could you? But I, I care about the character. You have to have realistic graphics or I'm not going to care like, about the This story. is my Link. This you know? is my Zelda. Yeah. This is my Ganondorf. Yeah. It has to have lots of... There has to have be lots of uh, detail in the textures or else I won't have emotions. You know, like it was, it was so against the grain and it was so marvelous. It turns out it had a, a, a huge emotional impact. You cared about the story so much more than in most Zelda games. And... Uh, Everything that was, it turns out it's not, it is cute, but more than that, it is consistent in a way that no Zelda game has been. Like, like Breath of the Wild looks like a patchwork quilt compared to this game. It is in, and this is a 10, almost 15 year old game at this point. That's in, that's absolutely insane. It's weird because I can I would think of it in my own head as someone who was the prime time person who grew up with Ocarina of Time to then see the transition to Wind Waker being my first big Zelda change, but being too young to really sort of be able to excommunicate what I actually thought about it. It was just like, this is a new Zelda. When I think about it now and you think about the timelessness of Wind Waker's art and the style yeah. they went for, like just the way you know bombs poof or like in that weird like silhouetted spiral motion and the yeah. the, the design stuff they went with compared to ocarina of time which obviously was a 3d polygonal thing that had the limitations of the time but the art style doesn't lend itself well to that even though it has a style that people mm-hmm. recognize instantaneously it carried on through twilight princess but when you look at that there isn't a sense of timelessness. It it, it doesn't look great. Right. It kind of looks like a heavy metal album. It's all dark. It's all brown. It's very gray. Whereas yeah. Wind Waker is art. Oh, it's beautiful. It's colorful. It's stunning. Yeah. And there are stylistic choices that you can't get away with in games like Ocarina of Time because it has to have a sense of realism. Whereas mm-hmm. in Ocarina, Wind Waker, you can be like, hey, this looks like a human. But you know what? What happens if you like is fired out of a cannon <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, yeah you can't yeah, do that in ocarina of time yeah and like and no and this is definitely not a slam on other zelda games where you know zelda team regardless of which game they're on they're the way that they approach character design the way they approach especially like garment and costume design and where they decide to put detail and where yeah. they know they can get away with not putting detail like they are so good at all of this stuff all the time uh, <laughs> and and wind waker is a huge mess there's parts of the game that are just an absolute disaster but um but yeah there's there are there are ways in which i think it was it was a huge risk. It was a huge departure. It was a huge experiment. And it is also pretty much unparalleled in the ways that it did that, even within Nintendo. And so, again, like maybe this is more of like a hang it on the wall game, but play it, it would be if it, wasn't, if it wasn't so much fun to just play through. And I wouldn't be so happy just playing through it constantly. Uh, then you know maybe it would be just a hang on the wall game but for me it kind of gets both spots it's a pretty um it's uh it was it was such a big deal for me as a, as a game artist and we wanted to make art for games to look at a game like that and see what was theoretically possible you know like yeah. um to see that you could 
make a game that looked completely different from everything else and that it would be a nightmare to make. You'd have to reinvent everything about how you were making game textures and models and, you know, you'd have to just make it all up new. But if you did, look what you could do. Look what you could do. And the fact is, like, we're, what, 2018 now? And if you think about Ocarina of Time, Twilight Princess, there are many games that have tried to sort of emulate that style. Fable is Mm -hmm. one of them. There are many games Okami, which we were talking about before. Exactly. Whereas Wind Waker, there is no other game I can really think of, apart from that, um, is it Ocean Horn, I think? There are no games mm-hmm. that have like gone for that style, because that is Wind Waker. There is yeah, nothing there few, like, like it. Yeah, there's a few games that I think, I think um, Katamari Damashi has a pretty timeless look and yeah. feel. Um, but they are still Hokum. two distinct styles. Like, you'd be like, yes. that's... That's Katamari. That's Katamari. Yeah. This is Wind Waker. Would you be like, that's yeah. Ocarina of Time. That's Fable. Uh, they're, they're, they're just so rare. Like, even even then, like the you know the the ability to come up with anything timeless. You know um, that Katamari Damashi exists at all. That Hohoka managed to exist at all. Um, to have a look and a feel that wasn't going to instantly technologically date itself. Yeah, is so remarkable. Uh, and, um, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just a, it's just an (laughs) astonishing thing. Well, Adam, you can take it with you because we are going to send you on your way now, which is very depressing. This is the worst part of the show, even though this is the worst, (laughs) this is what I decided when I made it, that I would send people off to a deserted place with the eight games. But Adam, you can take all of these eight wonderful games that you've chosen. And I cannot thank you enough for coming on the show and being so incredibly detailed and so well-spoken about all of them. It's been an utter pleasure, I honestly cannot say. Um, But there is one last thing I have to ask you before we send you on your way. And that is the Mm. final thing that I have to ask everyone before they leave. And we have very much spoken about games and the reasons as to why we love games and also the ways we look at them. But another important Mm. part of video gaming can also be the way we play them. And not in the sense of like motion controls or stuff like that, but the way we experience them through like a console, like a controller. Um, you know, over the years, everyone sort of gravitates to something or, or another. So if you could only take one console with you, bearing in mind you can't take PC because that can emulate everything. If you could only take one console with you, with the back catalog and your eight games, what would you take? Oh, it's probably going to be a GameCube. A GameCube, uh, interesting. Yeah, uh, it was. I mean, it's just everything Nintendo's good at. You know, re- rethinking what a gamepad can be or should be, uh, and doing it the best. I mean, the WaveBird is the most incredible. <laughs> those those kind triggers. of hand feel. Those like, triggers. Oh my. The God. triggers, the thumbstick, the little weird C stick, the giant A button. The whole thing was just plain remarkable and the gamecube itself was i think made with the same mentality i think you could have thrown the gamecube off a cliff and then gone and collected (laughs) it at the bottom and put a game in it and it would have been it would still work you know (laughs) yeah so Uh, it will survive a deserted uh, island and also they pioneered every almost every modern console is essentially a bunch of gamecubes uh they were the first console that was running off like a custom ATI GPU mm. and one of the first consoles that um kind of stacked up and did heat the way they were doing it like they were it was a really 
pretty pioneering hardware design that was mocked a lot at the time. And then the uh, Xbox 360 is basically just a GameCube. <laughs> and the PlayStation 3 is basically just a GameCube. Like, uh, like everybody was just like, oh, yeah, no, this is how you this do this. This is the way we bad. did it. Yeah. Don't bet against Nintendo. How many times do I have yeah. to say, don't bet against Nintendo? But Adam, we're going to send you on your way now. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I cannot thank you enough. Please tell the wonderful people who have listened all the way through where they can find you on the internet and also what they should be checking out. I'm pretty sure uh, Finji have a new game in the works. Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, I guess, I mean, the the homepage for all of our stuff is uh, just at finji.co. Uh, and there's going to be links to all the things on there. But, uh, you know, I think the our last release was Night in the Woods on Switch, which is a great place to play through that Absolutely. game. Absolutely. A, a game that means a lot to us. It would be my Desert Island game, except I already played through it a lot uh, <laughs> for QA. Uh, and I'm good for a while. Um, uh, I don't work on those days. Yeah, uh, working on another game called Overland, which is a turn-based survival game, which if uh, if anything that you heard across this podcast felt like, oh, I like games like that, then you might also like Overland. It is uh, uh, all these learning loops that I'm hooked on and it takes place on little Final Fantasy Tactics dioramas. It's just a yes. mashup of all my this favorite things. so cool! Um, which I'm still being allowed to make for some reason um so there's that and then we also announced another game that has a lot in common with the kinds of games i've been talking about which is called uh tunic uh and tunic won't be out for a while but um if you find us at a pax or at e3 or something like that then you might find uh, a little bit of a tunic demo that you can check out uh, but it's kind of a top-down uh sort of a zelda very Zelda inspired game, but that um, we're taking to some new places. So nice. um, yeah, bunch of, bunch of different stuff. And from the, from that finji.co, you can find all the Twitters and um, so ons and so forths. Absolutely. Definitely follow Adam, follow Becca, like do it, go ahead. Also check out Overland. It looks awesome. Those dioramas look so cool. It definitely reminds me of Into the Bridge and Final Fantasy Tactics and, Tactics and Advanced Wars. It's so cool. Um, but thank you so much, as always, for listening to this episode of Final Games. You, of course, can find Final Games on iTunes, on Stitcher, on SoundCloud, on Acast, all the wonderful podcasting networks. If you're on there, you might as well do, you know, a rating or a review. It really helps out. That old spiel, of course. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at LiamBME, and you can also find the show at Final Game Show. But until then, I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Final Games, and I hope to see you again next time. Goodbye. <laughs>